Nonetheless, Wildman Mark Merrill hand-raised in a token of victory just yesterday. And then from there, the heavens opened up, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, did they ever. It's not nice to fool with Mother Nature. And we say anything can happen here in the World Wrestling Federation. And it always does. And that was certainly no exception just yesterday as Savio Vega on his way to lock up with Stone Cold in the Caribbean strap match. And then, that's right, that's what happened. The lights went out. Transformer blew up. Nonetheless, on all over the world. From country to country. And all over I'm so confident that this man is going to beat you tomorrow night that I'll put a stipulation in there. If Steve Austin, if Stone Cold Steve Austin doesn't beat you tomorrow night, Savio Vega, the million-dollar man, Ted DiBiase, will forfeit his career. I will leave the World Wrestling Federation. I got news for you. Beware of the dog? I don't think so. You two better beware of the click. Hello, my name is Bob Bamber. Welcome to the Wrestling 20 Years Ago podcast going back in the time machine of May of 1996, Volume 2 of this month's show. Volume 1 is your WCW show. Volume 3 looks for all things ECW and Volume 4 covers USC. I'm being joined firstly by Craig Wilson. Craig, hello. Greetings. And Kieran Mitchell. Hello. Uh, Kieran, can you stop with the news? Yeah, the WWF ended up running a pay-per-view across two separate evenings after a heavy rainstorm in South Carolina wiped out the power for much of the show. Viewers at home saw the pre-show tag match along with the opener before losing the feed for the better part of an hour. It came back on in time to see Shawn Michaels and British Bulldog go to a draw in the main event. In the arena, a backup generator restored basic power to the building and matches did go ahead, but in near darkness, as some brief clips on Raw the following night proved. The rest of the pay-per-view aired during the encore presentation on Tuesday night at the site of what was otherwise WWF's Superstars tapings. Razor Ramon and Diesel formally departed the WWF this month, finishing off with quite the night at the company's sellout Madison Square Garden house show. Following the conclusion of the main event, main event cage match, Shawn Michaels revived Diesel by kissing him before the duo were joined in the ring by Ramon and Hunter Hearst Helmsley. The quartet hugged mid-ring before each posing in one corner. It said they were not given permission to do this and many were upset as it spoiled what was otherwise a buoyant evening with a rather impressive $300,000 gate. With Diesel and Razor gone and Shawn as champion, it said that Helmsley bore the brunt of the punishment, losing to Mark Merrow at the pay-per-view the following week. In Your House itself over the two nights featured a number of notable stories. First is the departure of Ted DiBiase, who vowed to leave the WWF if Steve Austin couldn't beat Savio Vega in a strap match, which he didn't do on either occasion. Shawn Michaels and the British Bulldog went to a draw on the Sunday show main event, and Mark Miro defeated Hunter Hearst Helmsley. 
The Smoking Guns defeated the Godwins to win the WWF Tag Team titles a week after the Godwins defeated the Body Donners for the belts. Sonny has managed all three teams at points during May. On the Tuesday show, along with Vega's win, there is a win for Vader over Yokozuna in a reversal of the result from the Sunday. And Goldust defeated Undertaker in a casket match after Mankind interfered. Razor Ramon debuted on Nitro the night after In Your House, referencing WWF's billionaire, billionaire Ted segment in an angle that is leading to a tag match at Bash at the Beach in July. Ramon, who went unnamed, walked out during the first two-hour Nitro and cut a promo calling out Billionaire Ted, the Nacho Man and the Ken Doll lookalike Eric Bischoff. The show ended with another Ramon promo telling WCW to bring the best they've got. It's said that Ramon will be joined by Diesel and, of all people, Lex Luger on the invading side to take on Team WCW. The other member of the clique, the 123 Kid, has been out of action following yet another concussion, rumoured to be his 13th. The WWF completed a five-night tour of Kuwait in early May. A tournament held there was won by Ahmed Johnson and a brief angle that aired on TV saw Davy Boy Smith end up dragging Shawn Michaels into the sea. An angle take for Raw between Goldust and The Undertaker was heavily edited and toned down. What was filmed involved Goldust licking Undertaker up his thigh. It was edited down to make it seem more like mind games. And in a bizarre segment on this month's TV, an advert aired promoting Warrior University, imploring people to follow his lead. Apparently that's part of the deal that saw Warrior return a couple of months ago. Ratings for the past month looked like this. On April 29th, Raw did a 2.9, a Nitro's 2.1. This was the first of three Nitro's that aired earlier due to the NBA playoffs. May the 6th saw Raw draw a 4.1 rating, its second highest ever, against Nitro's 1.9. On May the 13th, Raw did a 3.5 to Nitro's 2.3. Nitro won things back for the rest of the May mine, a 90-minute version of the show doing a 3.1 to Raw's 2.3 on May the 20th. And on May 27th, the first two-hour Nitro and the return of Scott Hall, Nitro did a 2.8 to Raw's 2.3. Warrior Man here. And you know, any academic institution can help you fulfill prerequisites, obtain a degree. But how many can prepare you to fulfill a dream? At Warrior University, you and me together can do just that. The testimonial on my life says that you, yes you, have the same exact chance of achieving your dreams as I did. If you really believe it, if you have the deep felt desire to discipline yourself to make the true sacrifices, the door to Warrior University could quite possibly lead into the dressing rooms of the WWF superstars. With my direction, the World Wrestling Federation seal of approval, and the curriculum at Warrior University, I believe you can turn your fantasy into an ultimate reality. We open up Raw on May the 6th with a tribute video to Ray Stevens. We cut to a disguised ex-wife of a professional wrestler who claimed that Shawn Michaels is a home wrecker and that he ruined her life. A bit more on that later in the show. We open up with Mild Man Mark Merrow versus the 123 Kid. Merrow drop kicks Kid over the top, then hits a high angle dive onto him that looked really good. Hunter Hearst Helmsley's on commentary for the match. He ends up getting into it with the fans in behind the commentary position. Hunter ends up crotching Mara on the top rope. Kid jumps on the top, attempting a superflex, but Mara counters it mid-move into a crossbody for a three. We get the full interview with the ex-wife of the pro wrestler. She said Sean called him because they wanted to discuss a problem with him, but when he turned up, he had other ideas. She said they ended up going into bed together. She said that next time her husband got in the ring with him, he lost, and that Sean never called her again. 
Vince McMahon on commentary afterwards says this was provided to our producers anonymously and Lord only knows our producers would do anything for a rating. Next up is Fatu versus the British Bulldog. Two of Fatu's family members come out of ringside dressed in black. Cornette gets involved off the apron with Fatu. Bulldog charges but Fatu moves and Bulldog shunts Cornette off of the apron. Bulldog wins it with a running power slam. Afterwards Fatu recovers and confronts his family members. You want to talk about being my family? The WWF fans are my family. Harvey Whipperman is out of ringside for a non-title match between the Body Donners and Techno Team 2000. He's taking notes on the officiating ahead of the report. He's preparing for the WWF president, Gorilla Monsoon. The new rockers are watching on a monitor backstage. The Body Donners win this one. Goldust and Marlena join Vincent King on commentary, then immediately storm off, then return to their position once the Undertaker's music hits. Goldust isn't happy. Goldust is shitting his pants at the presence of the Undertaker, who's facing Owen Hart. Goldust turns his attention to Paul Bearer, loosening his tie and taking off his shirt. Bearer beelines it up the aisle before things go too far. Undertaker wins the match cleanly. After the match, Bearer comes back out, wheeling a gold casket. Goldust bumps into it before fleeing up the aisle we return, open up Raw on May the 13th, with them saying that Ahmed Johnson won a WWF International Tournament on their tour of Q8. He does an interview backstage with Jim Ross, but is quickly interrupted by Sonny, who offers to oil him up. Ahmed politely declines before saying his mama told him to take out the trash. He faces off against Zip from the Body Donners. Well, he does before the Body Donners switch out and Skip takes over. They look similar from a distance, but I've no idea how the referee was supposed to have missed this. A few more shenanigans later, and Ahmed pins Skip with the Pearl River Plunge. We get a video package from Warrior University, with by any Warrior standards a ludicrously coherent promo. Speaking of taking out the trash, Vader is out next to squash Duke Druzy. Druzy actually gets in a fair bit of offence in the opening minute or so, but after that it's all Vader. Cornette joins Vincent King on commentary, which amuses Vince no end. We get an in-ring promo from Paul Bearer, tying the special casket match for his next movie, In Your House. The Undertaker starts talking and out walks Goldust and Marlena. Goldust does his usual shtick. What kind of clone is that? Is that embalming fluid number five? He takes uh, Undertaker by the hands, then holds him up. Undertaker drives into the map. Outruns Mankind and lays a beat down on Undertaker before submitting him with the mouth hold. This was a segment that they, they, uh, they recut that we mentioned in the news. After the beatdown, Goldust climbs on top of the fallen Undertaker and covers him, if I can be polite. Goldust blows a kiss to Marlena, but Undertaker sits up and Goldust bolts to the back. We get a squash match between Justin Hawk Bradshaw and Aldo Montoya. On commentary, Uncle Zabakaya says Shawn Michaels is running scared of Bradshaw. Bradshaw hits a lovely big boot and then an even sweeter clothesline for the pin. We get a video package voiced by Vince McMahon looking at the situation in Kuwait City. This leads to an angle with Dave Roy Smith seemingly trying to drown Shawn Michaels in the ocean. It's going to be your last breath. But he leaves him and says he's going to wait for In Your House. The main event is Shawn Michaels versus Hunter Hearst Helsley. Helsley's valet sits down next to King. This can only end badly. Shawn comes out and chats up Amy at one stage, but Helsley walked right into his trap and got attacked. Mid-match, out walks Mr. Perfect. Sean rolls through a powerbomb at one stage into a Frankensteiner and landed on top of his head, which looked a bit ugly. Sean hits the switch in music, and that's enough for the win. 
decent match that with that Mr Perfect walks to the back we end the show with an incoherent shouty promo from the British Bulldog right now we're going to go back live to the show to discuss the uh, the events of the ha- MSG house show on May the 19th and then we'll come back and cover the Raw 20th before the pay-per-view let me tell you the truth about the heartbreak kid Shawn Michaels Shawn Michaels is a home wrecker Shawn Michaels ruined my marriage. Shawn Michaels ruined my life. I'll tell you how it happened. My ex-husband was a professional wrestler and was on the road a lot. Shawn knew that. One day when Fred was on the road, Shawn called me up and said that he needed to discuss a problem that Fred had with me. So I invited him over. Well, Shawn didn't want to discuss a problem that we had. Shawn wanted to discuss me and him. Well, the discussion got pretty heated. Well, it got downright hot. And Sean and I were close, and he smelled so good, and he is so gorgeous. Well, we ended up going to bed together. He was incredible. He was the best I ever had. And after, he held me and told me how special I was and how important I was to him. <laughs> yeah, I found out how important. The next time the week me and Sean were in the ring together, <laughs> couldn't concentrate. He knew what had happened. He ended up losing the match. Sean got exactly what he wanted. Sean never called again. Sean just used me and threw me out like an old shoe. Sean didn't need me. And now, I see him doing it to someone else, and I just can't let that happen. Sean knew I couldn't resist him. He knew it. He ruined everything. And we come back. Uh, we will come on to the pay-per-view in a little while. But firstly, I think to... Uh uh, address what happened uh, at Madison Square Garden. Quite a noteworthy story. Um, here essentially is what we know. There was a match early in the evening between, uh, obviously, the final night of Razor Ramon and Diesel, both leaving at, at the same time, even though I think Diesel's Diesel's actually got slightly longer on his on his contract to run out. Razor obviously um, debuted on Nitro eight, eight days later. Um, Razor faced... Hunter Hearst Helmsley in a match early in the evening. Uh, that was a match he obviously lost. After the match, he went to grab the microphone. And because they didn't have that plan, they cut him off pretty quickly. But apparently all he said was say goodbye to the bad guy or something like that. We move forward to the main event. Shawn Michaels against Diesel in a cage match. Shawn won that cleanly, obviously. After the match, he quote-unquote revived Diesel with a kind of kind of frog's kiss type thing, apparently. Um, and those two kind of embrace quote-unquote breaking character. Out walks out Razor Ramon. Out walks out Hunter Hearst Helmsley. The four of them hugged, and then they kind of all split to their, all split to four corners of the ring to pose. Apparently there was, well, on top of the fact a lot of people already left by this point, there were some people that apparently just didn't have a clue what was going on, and others that very much understood the, the significance of what they're kind of calling this kind of curtain call, if you like, when people, you know, after a show finishes at a theatre, all the actors, good and bad, stand on the stage and, you know, the curtain comes up, they bow, the curtain comes down, they bugger off. That's kind of what they're calling this. Um, Craig, uh, you know, reaction backstage, a lot of people kind of unhappy in the sense that there was kind of no real um, permission to do this. And I think there was what was otherwise 
a show that was viewed on, on quite a high point. Craig, what do you think? It, it sort of, you'd imagine, uh, pun unintended, pulls the curtain back a little bit further in terms of what the older school guys uh, think of things. I mean, we know that Vince is sort of sought to distance himself in the early 90s from the, the term wrestling as much and it's a, a long time since sort of Hacksaw Jim Duggan and the Sheik were caught in a car together but I, I think this would have certainly angered a, a lot backstage the idea that exposing uh, the business for, for quite what it is. Kieran? Yeah, I, I don't kind of have a problem with it per se, I just think it's a bit naive and a bit disrespectful i understand you know wanting to say goodbye to your your mates and all that i mean we've all done it but it you it don't have strikes, to get out in the ring especially i mean they know what the deal they know what the deal is it kind of speaks to me and i said i've i said it before about the clip where they they get ideas above their station and they obviously think that they're in this untouchable position the two guys that are on their way out i mean they obviously care neither here nor there especially about what might they must have they're not idiots they must have thought well what could happen to these guys that we're leaving behind sure michael's obviously the champion you know he's not going to get touched so maybe they did actually think retrospective maybe they think well they probably won't do anything because they're not going to put it all on hunter but i just think it was a really naive and pretty stupid move bob to be honest yeah i i uh, the 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 phrase i kind of came up with was a bit self-indulgent you know it's not It's not like these are four iconic WWF acts. It's not like the WWF have been riding this wave for the last two years. That's, yeah, Hunter herself doesn't really come into this category, but the other three have been major WWF players in the last two years. And with the exception of the last few months, since kind of Sean came back and has been kind of on this rise towards the title, Business in 1995 was not great, and these guys, particularly Diesel, were a big part of that. And you know, when you're, if you're a lower card guy who's kind of house show payoffs are linked to what these guys are drawing at the top, when they're not drawing a lot, you, I, I think you could feel a bit pissed off that they can go out there and do that when it's like, you know, you're friends, but don't, don't go out there and have this big show closing angle, or not really angle, but this big show closing moment. That, you know, just for, for your own selfish reasons. Craig, does it, does it make much difference that it's at Madison Square Garden, which is such a historically significant WWF venue? Cause I think maybe if it was just a random house show, it might not be so significant, but MSG, which is, you know, the WWF building, you would say in many ways, has a ton of history for the company. Does, does that make it more of a significant story? Oh, I think I think it does with how closely linked MSG is to to uh, WrestleMania and obviously it being sort of home to the WWF for many many years. Um, I, I agree with all the self indulgent stuff, uh, but I, th- I think maybe it wouldn't have been quite as big a deal if it had been in some sort of no mark area rather than the home, if you will, of the WWF in its early days. Okay. Yeah, I, I just think. I just think you just absolutely nailed it, Bob. I just, I just think they just, they, they think that they're not better than they are. What I'm, the phrase I'm looking for, it. They overweight themselves, maybe is that right? It, yeah, I, th- I think they just get ideas, like I said, ideas about their station. I think to do it in that building, it's a calculated move as well. It's the premeditation which annoys me, um, because they've obviously 
plan to do it because they obviously come from from down the ramp. Could, I just think it could have been executed so much better where you just you just don't do it in front of the crowd, Bob. I think the, the building does play into it as well. The building does make it a lot worse, but I still think it's a story whether it's MSG or not. Oh, I agree. I think this is a story, but I, I think there's almost... Uh... Uh, as Craig mentioned earlier, in terms of how kind of the industry is changing, there's almost a kind of you know besmirching on the history of uh, of the company to do it in such a historically significant venue, and, and all of the guys that have kind of represented WWF at that venue down the years. Um, it's probably a step down from doing it in Vince McMahon's house. That would be the only thing that could have made it worse. <laughs> But, I mean, as far as Vince is concerned, I mean, that's probably like his second home MSG, considering oh, that de- oh, the company's left it. Without a doubt. Yeah, yeah, no, I know. Yeah, that's probably a good way of putting it. But yeah, it's just, I, I can imagine I'm sat backstage and I'm, you know, I don't know who would be a good example. I'm a... Uh, maybe Undertaker, maybe Undertaker's wrong because he's too high up the car, but I, I'm kind of one of these mid-card WWF guys, a guy like a Safio Vega, something like that, and and seeing seeing colleagues of mine do that and, th- and, and kind of feeling a bit pissed off. I mean, it was the end of the show. People were already leaving. And to be honest, there is... It is quite black and white. You either know the context of this story or you really don't. Um, so I, I think you, you'd either know they were going, in which case you'd probably understand it because you read the, you read the sheets and you know that they are part of this group of friends. You know, to an extent, I think that comes across on TV a bit as well. Um, but also I think the other side of it is if you don't know what's going on, you just don't. But it's, it's just a bit weird. You know, I, I don't think it's going to be the kind of thing that's going to linger much. You know, Sean is the champion. I don't think he's going to get punished. They're talking about, you know, Hunter Hearst Helsley kind of bearing the brunt of the um, the kind of retaliation of this. It's like, well, I think he might have lost against Mark Merrow anyway, but that's that, that's one maybe for another time. But, yeah, it, it did seem... It did just... Like, self-indulgent is probably how I would sum it up. It did just seem a bit like, you know, these these are these are four... Well, let's say, you, you can't really bring Hunter into the same discussion. These are three guys that have been good to very good. But it's like, you know, if, if, if WWF had their best business year ever in 1995 and it was thanks to these three guys working against each other... I think if I was sat backstage as that WWF mid-card guy, I perhaps would have gone, you know what, we drew a lot of money with you guys on top, fair enough. Given that business went down with these three guys in various positions on the card, I I would have been a bit more pissed off. It's probably how I would sum that up. We start Raw on the, uh, on the 20th of May with a clip from the MSG house show from the previous evening, although probably not the bit you want to see. Instead, it's a teaser for the Body Donners dropping the tag titles to the Godwins. Steve Austin defeats Mark Merrow by disqualification in the opener after Savio Vega comes out and attacks him with a strap. Give the Austin the heel. Seems a little bit bizarre. Vega is out next against the 123 Kid. Ted DiBiase teases him on commentary with a chauffeur's hat. As part of the stipulation of the pay-per-view, Vega loses, he'll become DiBiase's chauffeur. Vega wins the match after the Kid misses a top rope splash, but Austin runs out right after the match concludes and beats him down. With the help of the Kid, they successfully beat down Vega. Austin ties him up with a strap. 
We see footage from the MSG house shows last night. We do get a clip of Shawn Michaels' entrance, but nothing from later on. We see footage of Phineas and Hillbilly Jim trying to get their, uh, into their own locker room, which is locked. When it eventually opens up, out walks Sonny. We cut to the match. Sonny distracts Phineas on more than one occasion. Phineas eventually kisses her, hits the strop drop on Skip, and wins the tag titles. We get a promo from Paul Bear out on the ramp. Undertaker is inside the Goldust casket on the apron. He cuts a promo from a horizontal position. Mankind rushes out and shuts the casket and ties it closed with a, uh, with a rope. Goldust keeps Paul Bear at bay. Mankind starts going after the casket with a steel pole before toppling it on its side. Jim Cornette is out with Clarence Mason, the British Bulldog, and Diana Smith. Mason allegedly has a restraining order preventing Sean being anywhere near Diana before the pay-per-view. Gorilla Monsoon comes out to expect it. Cornette calls him a baboon. Monsoon confirms the legitimacy of the order, but of course orders Diana to leave the ringside area instead. Cornette is apoplectic. He even starts kicking Hebner at one point. Sean comes out for commentary as planned for the main event of Bulldog and Jake Roberts. The match is basically rest holds while Michaels and King bicker on commentary. Bulldog leans through the ropes and Sean says to him, Don't worry, you'll break a sweat this Sunday. Everyone does with Sean Michaels. Diana Smith comes out for the commercial. As we come back, she throws water over Sean. Sean says, you know, I wouldn't hit a woman before turning and decking Cornette. The show goes off the air as Bulldog goes after Sean. said that Sean Michaels was supposed to be out here to do color commentary on this particular match. But that ain't gonna happen because you see my man right here, my attorney, Clarence Mason, has... Oh, shut up. Yeah, tell him. Right here, he has, if you will notice, get a good shot, a restraining order preventing that no good, deviant Shawn Michaels from being within a hundred yards of Diana Smith between now and this Sunday. All right, big man, what do you think of that? So Sean ain't going to be out here. He ain't going to be doing no commentary. He's not going to be able to look at Diana Smith with lust in his eyes. He's not going to be able to undress her with his gaze. What is he doing here? Restraining order that prevents him from being anywhere near Mrs. Diana Smith. Oh, for heaven's sake! The WWF President Gorilla Monsoon. Do without you, right? You know what they say, monsoon happens. It's legal and it's binding and there ain't nothing you can do about it. Right. Read it was it. done by a court of law, not right. George in the Jungle, Mr. Baboon. <laughs> Apparently this is quite a surprise. And Gorilla Monsoon having some consultation with Howard. We promised you Shawn Michaels. I guess we're not going to be able to bring you Shawn Michaels. You know what? I wish he would come out here. Then he'd go to jail. I'll stop it. Unless, Ladies and gentlemen, may I have your attention, up. please? World Wrestling Federation President Gorilla Monsoon has confirmed that this indeed is a valid restraining order. Yes. And he will comply with the restraining order in the following manner. Mr. Monsoon has ordered that Diana Smith leave the ringside area immediately. And we come in for In Your House A. I will start briefly with the free-for-all, um, and then I'll kind of fill in what... We won't care to go through the results, and then I'll kind of tell you kind of 
the scenario surrounding everything that was going on that night. Uh, we get a promo from Hillbilly Jim about the Godwins winning the World Tag Titles at MSG last weekend. They're interrupted quickly by Sonny, who says that Phineas signed a contract last week, making her the co-manager of the team. Henry O and Hillbilly Jim do not look pleased. She accompanies them out to the ring. We open up on the free-for-all with a tag title match. The Smoking Guns, Billy and Bart versus the Godwins, Henry O and Phineas I with Hillbilly Jim and Sonny. Billy gets a near fall with a sunset flip, then transition into an arm lock. Harry levels Bart with quite a nice clothesline. Sonny gets on the apron. Billy ends up kissing her, which distracts Phineas no end. Bart hits a belly to back with a bridge, and that's the lot for the three. Sonny looks bemused, but walks off without her team. When questioned about Sonny, Billy said, I just gave her what she wanted. Somebody better go and check her for powder burns. Well, that means uh right let me fill in briefly all the scenario around in this story and then I'll, i will come to the results um so this show was being held uh, at the florence Civic center in south carolina on on the sunday um and basically just pissing it down with rain all night is the long and short of it short of it um i didn't see any in the feed we got but apparently during the um during the free-for-all and during the opening match, there were lights flickering and there were certain wrestlers, you know, kind of saying, well, when is the power going to go out? Um, and at the end of the first match, or just after the end of the first match, it did. Um, now, obviously, there is a pay-per-view going on at the time. There are people that have spent, I think, 20 bucks to watch this show and they were seeing nothing. In the arena, um, the main power went out, but they did get a backup generator into the building, which gave them some very rudimentary lighting. Um, and because the fans were there and they could just about see they carried on with the show so in almost near darkness with some battery operated cameras they they ran through the the middle order of the matches you like the middle three matches um apparently they were said to be because of the whole scenario with the the power going out there's quite a lot of crowd heat because there's a lot going on um and then about 45 minutes to an hour after the power went out, maybe a little bit less, um, they managed to, uh, Laura and Vince managed to get back on air and say, bear with us, we will come back on. And we came back for the main event of the show between Sean and, and Davey Boy. That was the Sunday. We come to Raw on the Monday, and they did show us clips of what happens in the in-betweening time, and it must be said that was dark, bringing a whole new definition to dark matches. But... After that, on Raw, they said, on the Tuesday, we will get the second night of In Your House, because it was Memorial Day weekend. They'd organise an encore presentation of the pay-per-view on the Tuesday. And because they were taking superstars on Tuesday night, they just then show aired the three matches we didn't see live on the Tuesday, along with bookending it with the show from the Sunday as part of the replay. Hope that all makes sense. Kieran, if you'd like to kick us off with the results from the pay-per-view that we saw. Yes, so the results are as follows. Mark Merrow with Sable defeated Hunter Hearst Helmsley in 1623. So in the main event, Shawn Michaels faced the British Bulldog that ended in a no contest for the WWF Championship, 1721. Um, on May 28th, the repeats, Savio Vega defeated Steve Austin with Ted DiBiase in the Caribbean Strap Match at 2127. Uh, Vader with Jim Cornette defeated Yoko Zuna, 853. And Goldust, the Intercontinental Champion, with Marlena, defeated The Undertaker with Paul Bearer in a casket match for the at 12.36. Uh, that was for the Intercontinental title. Uh, Kieran, also, if you could just run us through the matches that happened on the Sunday that we didn't see. So, yes, the veritable in-the-dark matches. The Savio Vega defeated Steve Austin again, who's with Ted DiBiase, again in the Caribbean Strap match. Um, Yokozuna defeated Vader this time with Jim Cornette. 
um, and Goldust with Marlena defeated The Undertaker. I'm, I'm told that version of the Goldust Undertaker match ended up with interference from about six different people. So about about half as many as Yokozuna needed to defeat Undertaker a couple of years back. Um, Craig, a rather unique set of circumstances. What did you think of these shows? Uh, I, I, I think the, this this uh, event will be remembered more for the, the storm and everything rather than anything on the, the event per se. What, what we got was was pretty decent in terms of the, the matches that aired. I mean, uh, I thought Mark Merrill and Hunter was a little bit boring, but everything else was uh, pretty solid. Uh, Shawn Michaels and British Bulldog had a, had a, had a good match. Uh, on paper, it could have been great. I, for me, I, I, it felt to me that they just didn't click together for some reason. Uh, I did enjoy the uh, Caribbean strap match, part two, the one that aired. I thought Vader versus Yokozuna was pretty hard hitting. It's the sort of match I'd kind of hoped to see when uh, when Vader came to the company, but I'd have liked to have seen 1993 Yokozuna rather than 1996 Yokozuna in it. And the 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 main event, so as casket matches go, it was uh, it was pretty good. Yeah, yeah, I thought it was pretty solid, Bob. Um, I was kind of let down I think my main disappointment was the main event like Craig said I was expecting a lot more from that match so the the other matches that I thought were were you know quote unquote bad um I was actually more disappointed with the main event and that was my that was like the biggest let down the show it wasn't necessarily the worst the matches that were a lot worse it was just that that main event I felt could have been a lot more yeah I mean I, I don't know how much credence or credit we give Sean and Bulldog on the idea that it can't have been the easiest match to prepare for not knowing that when if and as and if and when you're going to get out there not knowing if you're going to be wrestling in the dark and not knowing what you're going to have to do I don't know whether that plays any part in how you'd kind of talk about it the match itself that one was a bit of a an odd one. The, the first two matches were all a bit rest hold heavy. As I say, I don't know how much of an extent we can we can say that things were affected by by the storm in terms of how people were preparing and things like that. Um, and then the second night um, improved by having Perfect and Jim Ross on commentary was a decent set of matches. But we will we will see anyway. We're in South Carolina on the Sunday. Vince McMahon and Jerry the Link King. Jerry the King Lawler have the call. Opening up first, it's Hunter Hearst Helmsley versus Wildman Mark Merrow with Sable. We start with an exchange of punches. Merrow punches Hunter over the top and hits a slingshot crossbody to the outside. He follows that with a slingshot leg drop back into the ring. Merrow charges in the corner but smashes his shoulder into the turnbuckle. Hunter takes control. He hits an arm breaker and slowly starts working over his arm. He gets Merrow by the ring post and smashes his arm off it. Hunter goes for an arm bar. It takes him a while but he locks it in. Merrow takes a while, but he gets close to the ropes. Hunter pulls him away. Another go. Merrow eventually gets there. More rest holds than an attempted belly to back. Merrow flips out and does a lovely roll up using his legs to turn Hunter over, which livens up the crowd. Hunter comes off the top with a hits a sort of axe handle on Merrow. He then locks it in an armbar and uses the ropes for leverage. Some heat at last. Hunter goes to the top. Merrow jumps up and is able to crotch him on the buckle. He follows that with a Frankensteiner. Merrow comes off the top rope and hits the head scissors, which sends Hunter into a spin. He hits a back body drop, goes goes to the top, hits a lovely float over sunset flip. 
He drop kicks Hunter to the outside, then attempts a running flip dive over the top. He lands hard on his knee. That may not have been an angle, though it didn't seem to affect the rest of the match, but it looked quite painful. Hunter goes for a pedigree. He says, watch this to Sable, who turns her head as she can't bear to watch, and starts crying. Hunter goes to the outside, grabs a hold of her, and tells her to watch. He returns to the ring, slaps Mero, sets up for the pedigree. Mero flips him on his back, catapults him into the ring post. Hunter falls back into the ring, having apparently knocked himself out, and Mero pins him for the three. Kieran? I thought this was a really solid match, Bob. I think um, the way that um, Hunter sort of works over the shoulder to begin with, I really like that. Maybe maybe it goes on a bit too long. Um, you alluded to like the rest hold, heavy nature, and I think that applies to this match in some respect. But overall, a good, really good match. I really like Mero. I liked him when, you know, back in uh, WCW, like, I like this, st- when they throw the sort of the high flying stuff thrown into this match as well, I thought it was really good. I, pr- I did appreciate some of the psychology as well with Sable, because obviously she'd, um, she was with Hunter to begin with, and Mero sort of, whatever you want to saved her, or however they sort of put it across. Reclaimed his wife, I think, is the official way, even though they didn't actually... I don't think they've ever referenced Sable properly being (laughs) Mero's wife, but I think think that's what we can call it. So you can reclaim a human being, but yeah. Um, um, But no, I thought it was really good. There was some, like I said, high-flying stuff, some good, decent psychology, and I think it showed a lot of maturity from Hunter for me. Craig? Uh, I don't know, I just... I, I, I don't really think I can go either of the two guys, so uh, on that front I was never really going to be too into this match and I just thought it was quite bland and a little bit boring. Uh, it didn't sort of do what you would hope a opening match would do, get the sort of crowd ready for the night. I just it, I wouldn't have looked at a place uh, half, in, half the length and on Raw, to be honest. Yeah, I, I thought this was a bit flat. Um, you know, some so, solid, it, it, while technically true, I think it's solid on the quite boring end of, uh, of that word in the sense that the crowd were flat. I thought it was a match that was of, of such length where it probably needed a couple of more phases than what we got. It was just a very long kind of wear down by, um, of Nero by Hunter. And then we kind of got this this comeback, which felt a bit flat. The crowd were a bit flat. And again, you know, if you're sat in the crowd and you can see the lights flickering, maybe you're just distracted. I don't know. Um, but that was all a bit weird. And then, yeah, um, you know, this this idea that Hunter Hearst Helmsley is being punished for what happened at MSG the week before, I think he might have lost this anyway. We're talking about a guy that's lost to Duke Drewsy on pay-per-view this year. Um, you know, it's not like it's not like he was massively favourite going into this. And Mero's a guy they're pushing as well. Um, it was fine, but, you know... Um, a, a bit flat. I, I think Craig, you're right. This this felt like a raw match, and not not a raw match you're going to remember two days later. Would that be fair, Craig? It, it, it would be. Yeah, and I, I just don't feel that Merrow's hitting the heights that he was in in WCW. Oh, no, either. no, I'd, I'll I'll definitely come in on that, Craig. I I totally agree with you there. I mean, I did say I enjoyed him WCW, but he's nowhere near the Johnny B. Bad. Nowhere near. No, he hasn't Ever- got he hasn't got that yet, Craig. Everything that was interesting about uh, Johnny B. Bad as a sort of mid-card talent is just complete, completely lost. Uh, I guess Vince clearly was signing them to bring in uh, Johnny B. Bad, but uh, stuck with a sort of lame boxer gimmick instead. Yeah, I mean, 
Bad was always a guy in WCW that I felt kind of came out to a lukewarm reaction, but was able to get fans invested, and he did that fairly consistently. He was a, as a fairly standard character, even though I suppose if you broke it down, you might, you know, think it was a bit more out there. It was a fairly basic babyface gimmick. Yeah. Um, but I think also it probably just helped. One thing that Vince McMahon cannot really help is that I think one of the reasons Jeremy Bad worked so well was that he'd just been around for quite a while and people recognised him. And the fact he, he but I, the one thing he's missing here is that he seemed to wrestle such a, an emotive and out there style in WCW. We've not seen that yet. He's been fairly reserved and this wild man gimmick, which seems even a bit more, a bit more kind of flaky than even his, his John B. Bad gimmick. We haven't really seen that yet in a way that's kind of emoted himself to the crowd. Any more, Craig? Uh, no, I, I, I'd agree with uh, I'd agree with all of that. Uh, I, I imagine Vince must be reasonably disappointed with uh, what he's got with Mark Miro, but he's, he's certainly given a good punt to try and get him try and get him over, but just doesn't seem feel to be clicking. Yeah, I mean, he's only been there seven weeks. I mean, that's, uh, I think there's, there, there is, well, eight now, but there is the kind of thought that, you know, you've got to give it a bit of time. He needs some programs and I, Kieran, I know Sable is his actual wife, but is it, is it not helping Mero get over that he's got it's, Sable with him? It's the, like I said, it's, it was, Good side, it was within the match itself, the psychology like works, you know, sort of Hunter going that. But she works, she would work so much better with somebody like Hunter. It yeah. just makes, it just makes so much more sense. I, I, I just always think I have this vision, apart from say somebody like Miss Elizabeth, the valet thing, I always think should go with the heel. And I just think, and her look to go with Hunter's look, not saying Mero's not an attractive, well, not saying he's a, well, I don't want to go down that hole anyway. <laughs> but but what all I'm saying is she would just be so much better if they just left her with um Hunter, I think. Yeah, I I think it, it it's the thing that the baby face should be the 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 one the guys want to be and the one the women want to be with. And it's like I don't know that having Sable with him aids either of those factors and given that he's quite a fresh gimmick I I don't know that that works. Anyway, we'll move on. We cut backstage. Essentially, I think you know the the, the copy of the, the the show we got essentially just jumped straight through to the main event. I believe that's what happened. I think they went off air right after this point. Um, we don't see the clip of uh, of Vince and King telling people to stay tuned. Um, but later in the show, we cut backstage with Jim Cornette, British Bulldog, and Co. Clarence Mason has a neck brace on and a sling. Mr. Perfect is doing the interviewing. Cornette says Owen Hart is the manager of the Bulldogs this evening. He's got another bombshell to drop on Sean, and that's why he's not going out there for the match. Sean Michaels is interviewed backstage by Doc Hendricks. Sean isn't scared of the bombshell. Cornette is threatening to deliver. Beware of the dog. Yeah, beware of the click. As he's walking out through the back, he bumps into Mr. Perfect. There's an uneasy stare down. Sean carries on out. Clarence Mason gets on the mic, Kane neck brace and all. He says Sean Michaels has single-handedly tried to destroy their family values. He summons in Sean with an attempted alienation of affection, whatever that means. Sean te- tears up the subpoena and Bulldog attacks him. Um, Craig comments on that, and also I, I think the the biggest thing of anything I said there would have been the the, the tease of Sean and Perfect. 
Uh, yeah, I, I was uh, I was intrigued by the the, the Sean and Perfect stuff. Uh, be interesting to see where that goes. I have to say, I quite like Clarence Mason. Uh, he's not sort of Clarence like, Mason is brilliant. Yeah, yeah, but like like you just said, that some of the stuff he says, you don't really know what he's talking about. But uh, I, I don't think that's necessarily his fault. But there there is something about Clarence Mason that just makes you hate him. And I guess that is that's his whole point if he's going to be a heel manager. Kevin. Yeah, I, I really like that, the Clarence Mason bit, and the perfect stuff is just, just really intriguing, but the Clarence Mason thing, he's so bloody annoying. It's gonna, <laughs> he's, he's gonna get some really good, like proper cheap heat ears, Bob. Like, yeah. Without, without the, he just opens his mouth. The neck brace just annoyed me. I don't know what it is about a neck, it, it just looked like, oh, I bet he's faking it. Do you know what I mean? So it, I was instantly annoyed, so I instantly liked it. We move on to the main event of night number one. It's Shawn Michaels with Jose Lothario versus the British Bulldog with Diana Smith and Owen Hart for the WWF Championship. Shawn starts off at a pace, hitting a slingshot crossbody on Bulldog on the outside. Shawn locks in a side headlock, vaults off the turn t- top turnbuckle and takes it to the mat. Bulldog gets to his feet. We get an attempted leapfrog spot, but Bulldog catches Shawn. Bulldog lies down, expecting Sean to run a crossover. Sean stops and neatly ties up Bulldog with his legs for a neat pin attempt. Bulldog barely gets up for an arm drag. Sean walks in another submission. Bulldog fights out but cannot fully escape the hold. He manages to escape with a slam and Bulldog locks in a rest hold. Bulldog picks up Sean on his shoulder and locks in a submission with Sean draped over him. Sean escapes and goes for a crucifix pin. Bulldog just drops him into a slam. Another rest hold. This takes so long, Sean may have actually fallen asleep. Eventually rallies out, then bouncing off of, they bounce off opposing ropes, then again. Sean shoots for a shoulder tackle, but Bullock evades it, sidesteps him. Sean stumbles quickly under the bottom rope to the outside. That's quite, we don't see enough people evading uh, Irish whips, but there we go. Uh, Bullock goes to the outside and slams him onto the guardrail. Sean recovers by jarring Bullock's head off the top rope and hitting a loose slingshot clothesline. Sean connects with a running forearm, then flips to his feet. Some females in the crowd shout their appreciation. For what it's worth, there was one female, I think, in the front row to the left oh, of hard okay. camera that we will come on yes. to, um, that was very much distracting both men. At one point, they're on their arrest hold. Bulldog just goes, shut up. Um, and, and Sean, Sean, at least beyond that, was a little more reserved. But they were, they were both quite distracted by all of that. Anyway, where are we? Um, Sean connects with a running forearm, then flips to his feet. Oh, we've done a bit. Uh, Bulldog goes to run the ropes, but charges into the referee and knocking him to the outside. Sean goes to the top, hits an elbow drop. There's no ref. Sean shakes the super kick. Owen gets in the ring and Sean kicks it. Well, he, he, he tried. I think he largely missed, but Owen sold it anyway. Behind the ring, a ref sprints across screen and comes to the ring to stop Bulldog beating down Sean. Sean fires Bulldog into the turnbuckle, hits a bridging belly-to-back suplex, and there's a pinfall. Bulldog's music hits and he starts celebrating. This is basically a repeat of the Flair and Steamboat spot from uh, Spring Stampede a couple of years ago. Each ref thinks one of them won it. Diana walks off with a title. There is quite the visual when she stood on the R-way holding up the WWF Championship. Grilla Monsoon walks in and snatches it off her. 
They say both officials each counted one pair of shoulders on the match. They declare the match a draw, saying the title will stay where it is until the rematch happens. Cornette is absolutely fuming. For what it's worth, they, they basically said this match was a draw, but they really struggled to find a camera angle which showed Earl Hebner counting from the outside. They did find one on the end, but it really wasn't clear that anyone was counting short. Um, another note in this match, I don't think this came across in, in, in the edit we saw, because I think it got edited out by the time the rerun happened. Um, but apparently Shawn Michaels really got into it with one of the WWF production guys on the outside about his music being queued up. Uh, and he chewed him out for it right after the match. And we, we don't really see that in the clip we saw, but that's also noteworthy. Craig, what do you think of this match? Uh, yeah, as I, as I said earlier on, it was, uh, it was pretty good. It, it did sort of feel like something was missing. And I guess, like you uh, hinted at earlier on, Bob, it could all be to do with guys not really being sure what was happening, if the match would even go ahead or, or really whatever. But it, it was fine for what it was. But, I, I mean, I don't think this will ever really make any best of type match collections. Kira? It's sort of, it was, it was okay throughout. I thought the, the ending was kind of like the best part. Um, sort of the feud is, is carrying on. It was kind of the right result. We, like you said, we could have done with a bit more clarity, you know, in regarding to the count from the other count from the outside. I just think you, you know, Sean can do a lot better. I think Bulldog can do a lot better, but in retrospect, and I didn't think about it watch at the time. I do think that the night's events, it can't have helped, Bob. I'm not going to make excuses, but it can't have helped at all, can it, really? No, I mean, I, as I say, I think more in the sense that we don't know how long this match would have got had they have had a normal pay-per-view. It's possible. It Kieran, do you remember how, do you have in your um, result list how long this match was? Um, I'll let you bring that up while I carry on. Yeah, I mean, in terms of, it kind of, it kind of helped them preparing them for a match in terms of getting warmed up and in terms of structuring a match, not knowing whether it was going to be one at all, whether they get 10 minutes at the end, who knows. Um, but equally, I don't think it worked anyway. It wasn't like the work was necessarily bad. It just never really got going. Another match that was, was kind of too, too dominated by rest holds and the fact. Seven- Oh, sorry, it was 1721. Okay, it got a fair bit of time then. It probably wouldn't have got a lot longer if it had gone normally. I wonder if maybe it had time cut then. Because, I, mean, I do, Craig, the, I do. Yeah, because like you look at it and that's only, what, maybe 30 seconds, 40 seconds longer than Meadow Triple H got. So maybe they, for some reason, despite all the problems, had to cut time. So it, it did just feel like something was missing, so... Missing a couple of minutes of action kind of maybe makes sense. They maybe had to sort of squeeze a lot more into a lesser time. I don't know. It, yeah. it, it does just seem odd. It, it, it was one of those matches that even with the finish never really felt like we got close to an ending. It was, yes. it was, it was a match that felt like it just mm. stopped. Abr- it was almost like, it, you know, it, imagine they, they found out they were really running short of time and they were... You know, I had about five or six minutes left in the match, and then someone said, shit, we've got to bring it home. And that's, <laughs> yeah, that's what they yeah. went for. It wasn't necessarily that they had match, they had time cut from the match at the top. It was almost like they just forgot to f- fill in the last five minutes of the match. Yeah, yeah. that makes sense. Kieran? Yeah, I, I totally agree. I just, you, you just think was, if they cut out a certain spot, um, I think Bulldogs maybe would have had more time um, I just there was just I think I think there's just overall there was probably just something missing. Um, but it 
again, you have to, I have to review the match as I saw it, and it was just apart from like I thought the end was quite good. The rest of it was just sort of a bit meandering. Whether those whether the night's events impacted it or not, or whether there was time cut or whatever, the match itself was just a bit blah. Oh, I, I think the bigger impact was that the, the woman in the front row of the crowd just happened oh, to play the I mean, as I say, somebody you, just, just, just Clarence Mason, just take her out or something, <laughs> you know, give her a, so she can have the neck brace. Something, yeah, subpoena her, I suppose. Maybe. Oh. Yeah, but, but no, I mean, it, it was weird. Like there was, there was a lot of noise going on and, and there's a rest hold at one point where you can see Owen kind of op- on the opposite side of the ring, kind of looking over and going, what the fuck's going on here? <laughs> and then we, we get into another, and there were a lot of rest holds in this match. Let, let me make this clear. And then we get into another point and Bulldog's got Sean a chin up. He's just like, shut up! Like, <laughs> just across the ring. And not, not that Shawn Michaels needs anything to set him off the end of the match proved that um that didn't help either a weird set of circumstances i guess the proof of the pudding in this match is actually going to be in the rematch next um next month at king of the ring in the sense that we might be able to find out what these guys can do because craig you know comment on what i just said but also just on the fact that i would think that sean and bulldog would be capable of a lot better than this yeah, I, I, I think so as well. Uh, like I was saying, like on paper you think, oh, this could, this could be really good. You've got the Bulldog, uh, with big power moves, making big impacts, and you've got Shawn Michaels who can pretty much drag a match out of, uh, most people. Not that I'm necessarily saying he needs to stay in the Bulldog's case, but just, you've got two guys, different styles, both so, solid and upwards in the ring, but, yeah, yeah, this felt like it was missing something. So hopefully, whatever it was missing, they they find for the next time around. Sure, Michaels has dragged better matches out of worse wrestlers. I would say that that's how I would sum this up. Um, yeah, I think that's fair. Um, I, I guess we should probably do this at this point. Uh, Craig, your we don't do score rating, but your your thoughts on this section of the show at this point, given that this is effectively the end of night one. Uh, yeah. Uh, all right. Uh, I, I didn't enjoy the opening match, but I, th- I thought this was uh, this was this was pretty good. Uh, judging by the the results that were read out earlier on, I don't think necessarily we we terribly missed much uh, as a as a viewer watching this on video than the crowd saw live. But uh, it was all right. Karen, yeah, it's, it was it was solid. I enjoyed parts of the first match. Um, I enjoyed parts of the the main event. So I just I just say solid. It wasn't nothing, nothing, ter- nothing terrible, but nothing like uh, amazing. No, I'd agree. Two kind of very middling, not not awful, but quite forgettable matches. Um, the ending of the main event didn't help, but I guess that was a, a necessary means to an end. Um, yeah, all right, but no better, no worse. Uh, we'll do something fairly um, so that we'd never done before. We all break mid pay per view review uh, to cover some TV. Raw on May the 27th opens with a gold dust against the Ultimate Warrior in a King of the Ring first round qualifying match. Vince assures us that we're not about to see what happened in Omaha in your house last month, thank God. Vince says they didn't deliver on three matches last night at the pay-per-view. Could make the case, didn't deliver on the other two either. Uh, Goldust walks off, but Ahmed Johnson picks him up on the ramp and delivers him back to the ring. Later in the match, Goldust retreats up the aisleway. Ultimate Warrior casually follows in there and they both get counted out. King ends up goading Warrior, I think, with Marlene's gold chair, which Warrior proceeds to smash up. 
We see a recap of what happened last night, including the moments where the lights went out. They actually show clips of wrestlers fighting in the dark, and when you read reports of the light being low, it barely covers it. Vince says we'll see three matches we didn't see last night on tomorrow's pay-per-view encore presentation, which will be shown live from where they're taping superstars. Ted DiBiase on interview says that his Austin doesn't beat Savio Vega tomorrow. Um, he will leave the World Wrestling Federation. Next up is the Smoking Guns with Sonny against the Body Donners. Hive Whippleman is once again out analysing the refs. The Guns win the match. Sonny, for now it seems, is managing the new tag champs. The main event is another King of the Ring qualifier. Armour Johnson whips the crowd into a frenzy with an early beatdown of Vader. Jim Cornette tries to level up the playing field with a tennis racket shot. Vader misses a moonsault during the match. Johnson drags Cornette into the ring, who's absolutely priceless as he begs off. Johnson shells Cornette into Vader. The ref tends to Cornette as Johnson spine busts Vader. Owen comes off the top of the shot to his, of his cast to Ahmed's head. The ref comes to and Vader pins Johnson to advance to the semi-finals thanks to the earlier bye. Johnson gets stretched off uh, after the break. We travel through to the back and Goldust attempts, attempts to give him mouth to mouth. To be fair, it actually seems to work, but Johnson comes to and chases Goldust into the bowels of the building. Well, he does until he keels over as he's going down the stairs. Bob Holly finds him and asks him if he's okay. Ahmed strangles him up against the wall. Johnson bursts through it into Goldust's locker room, but he can't find him, so he knocks out the cameraman instead as we go off the air. So we jump forward a day. We'll, we'll, we'll quickly comment on Raw before we move on to the Tuesday and the rest of the show. Uh, Raw on the 27th, um, I think by and large was basically the show they were going to put on anyway. Um, it was the start of the King of the Ring qualifiers and King of the Ring wire ember this year will only feature four, uh, the semis and the final on the pay-per-view itself. We'll still get the round of 16 and the quarterfinals, but those will happen all on TV. So we got two of those King of the Ring qualifiers. Um, I, I guess the one thing to comment on I mean, there's an angle at the end that we'll discuss in a minute. Um, and if you either of you two got anything to say about anything that happens on the show separately, we can cover that in a sec. I guess the one thing to comment on pertaining to the pay-per-view itself was the clips we did see from the dark matches that were happened in the middle of the show. Um, Kieran, uh, I think, you know, I'm not even sure why they filmed it in a sense that it was so dark. I mean, I'm actually quite surprised they were able to wrestle because the the brief amount of footage they showed on Raw that was really dark. It was it was akin to uh, I when they said dark. I mean, I made up my own ideas because I obviously knew that there was going to be some something on the Raw where they're going to sort of show clips. I had no idea, Bob that it was going to be that dark. I think you, I mean, you imagine kind of like dingy 1960s yes. wrestling. You know what I imagine? You know what I imagine? Imagine. Remember like the old, um, the old boxing matches where they would sort of, the entire crowd would be in darkness, but the, the ring would be lit. Probably not that strongly lit in this case, but that's what I expected. I expected to maybe see that the wrestlers could sort of, sort of get by, if you like, but that everything else would be pitched black. But when I saw what it actually was, I was astounded that they actually did it just on health and, well, health and safety. I mean, it's it's wrestling, so, so to a certain extent it doesn't apply. But I was just surprised that they bothered at all because it was pretty dark. Craig? Uh, yeah, uh, for me it sort of seemed like the sort of uh, late 80s house show type type feel to it. But yeah, I mean, if you if you were in attendance, I think you you'd be 
pretty annoyed because you'd spend the whole time squinting to see matches like a 30 second classic between Justin Hawk Bradshaw and Jake the Snake I can't help but think you'd come away from that night being bitterly disappointed although it does give me a new idea for Goldust's next set of ring gear which should glow in the dark <laughs> that would be that would be a good kind of that would be a good way of following on from that um, but yeah all all a bit strange, and credit to the guys involved. I mean, apparently the matches were quite decent. I mean, there was, there was apparently the, you know, we're going to review the strap match um, from the uh, the show the following day. Um, but apparently the strap match was almost as good as the one they did on Tuesday, which given that it was in about 80% dark, it's a bloody good effort. Um, Kieran, I know you uh, thoughts on Goldust and Warrior? Oh, too, oh, God. It was just too long. But why is that match that long? And then for that that ending, just oh uh, no, I just didn't like it at all, Bob. Too yeah, long. I mean, like Craig, shouldn't Warrior just be a house show act these days? I I think so, or or steamrolling through people if you want to use them yes. Uh, yes. towards the top of the card, not sort of sixteen minute. Uh, meandering matches with someone like Goldust that, that seems to have only been about leading to a program between uh, Warrior and Jerry the King, which I mean, even on paper, sounds absolutely atrocious. Uh, Goldust and Armand Johnson doesn't sound a lot better. No, no, but uh, Warrior versus Jerry the King Lawler in 1996 sounds pretty, <laughs> pretty bad. It sounds pretty bad in 1986. Um, True. But yeah, I mean that's going to be on King of the Ring next month. But who knows? I mean, I, I can imagine Lawler and Warrior will just have a twelve-minute match that is about eight minutes just pissing about. Um, yes. But and, and then and then Warrior just kills it. I mean that that's the logical way of doing it. But still, it's it. You know, you talk about new generation. We talk about them mocking WCW for using over the hill stars, and you're going to do a pay per view which is includes a match between. Two guys long past their prime. I was going to use the example, Bob. Was it the 1994 King of the Ring when Laura and Roddy Piper? Piper. Yeah. Oh, that, God, that that brought that in mind, and we ridiculed that at that time. And because uh, that that was probably the month or the month after the whole new generation thing started. That was after. And that was now, a, go on. Sorry, no, no, you go. Uh, and that was, you know, that w- we were we were looking at it then. It was around that time where they started labelling it as the new generation because this was that was right. That was the same month that Hogan debuted in WCW. That was June '94, which is the first clash that Hogan appears at. Didn't wrestle on that show, but he appeared at it. And so at the same time, to counteract all of that, they were doing these kind of adverts showing like. The, the old generation, which was kind of Hulk Hogan moving around very slowly in black and white. And then the new generation, which was Razor Ramon and the one, two, three kid flying off the top turnbuckle. And it was like, you know, this is the new generation. We're faster and more exciting. And then, mm-hmm. and then, and then like three or four weeks later, the main event of King of the Ring was Jerry Lawler and Roddy Piper. <laughs> I, 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 I wouldn't expect Lawler and Warrior to go on last on this show because I imagine it will still just be Sean and Bulldog. But, like, that felt out of place two years ago and that whole idea of Jerry Lawler being a, a, an act that people want to see as an in-ring act is, is no more out of date now than it was then and it was completely out of date two years ago. Go on, Craig. Yeah, I, I mean... Uh... Yeah, the, the point I was going to make was Jerry the King Lawler was two, is now two years on from when we absolutely ridiculed his match with Piper. But it is worth noting that around about 
Summer 96 Warriors, surprisingly only 37. Was he really? He was born in 1959. Yeah, but Warriors, like, Warriors just, like, Warriors one of those wrestlers that he needs, like, Warrior almost needs to be around in the territory era. In that he needs to go into a place for two or three months, kill it, and then leave. Because the, the longer he sticks around, the more his luster wears off, and the more you work out how limited he is. Yes. In 1996, it doesn't really matter how old Ultimate Warrior no, is. No, no, I, I was going to still argue that he is still uh, very much a throwback and part of a, a previous generation, if you will. But yes, I, I do take your point, absolutely. Kieran, thoughts on any of that? Yeah, uh, um... Nothing more than what I've just said. Look at the match itself. Aside from whether Warriors should be there or not, I just it was just an odd. I yeah, I just don't understand why it got so long. Really? Yeah, I. I, I, just so un, it's just so underwhelming when you can. Like I said, it, if if Warriors going to be in a tour, do you know why I would have done it? Right? If if Warriors going to be in a tournament like this, um, and you haven't, they haven't sort of already sort of assign someone in the rest the way pro wrestling does where they say it's obvious this guy's going to win you know the tournament well it was going to be Hansley up until a couple of weeks ago so oh, I, I, okay. I don't know what's okay. going to happen now um, so if it's so it's all up in the air perfect then have like Craig said don't have gold dust just do what Craig said and just have Warrior steamroll through a couple of rounds have him do that and then Maybe losing some in the fairest way, but don't have him in the opening round of the tournament go in some fifteen-minute stink fest. Yeah, I mean we, yeah. we we say all this like there's any confusion. Vader should be winning it next month. Uh, we'll discuss Vader when we get to the match. Craig, any more? No, no. Uh, I, I think we've had, we've had a heated enough argument over the merits of the Ultimate <laughs> Warrior. Yes, something <laughs> like that. Um, and yeah, I, I guess the other thing of, of note from from this show is the the ending segment. Uh, I'll, I'll read through my final paragraph of my TV notes. Uh, you will have heard actually. Well, let me just say it. But for for the benefit of us, given that we haven't actually rec- I haven't actually recorded that bit yet, um, Johnson gets stretched off to the back. We travel back through the back, and Goldust attempts to give him mouth to mouth, which, to be fair, actually seemed to work. Johnson comes to and, and, and finds out he's got gold paint on his lips. Uh, he ends, ends up chasing gold dust into the bowels of the building, uh, well, until he keels over going down the stairs. But while Holly asks if he's okay, Ahmed strangles him up against the wall. He bursts into gold dust locker room, but he's not there, so he just knocks a cameraman out instead. Um, Craig, this is pushing the boundaries in 1996, or at least it's meant to be. Uh, yeah, I mean, we, we saw when uh, Goldust debuted... Uh, how they sort of really ramped things up, but then seem to tow it, uh, tone it down, sorry, a little bit. But they, they seem to be going back full, full throttle with the very, very edgy, uh, Goldust character. So it's, it's interesting to see that, but interesting to see that, but again, they sort of, it does have the feel of a sort of stop, start, stop, start, but it, I mean, I don't know what, I don't know what their end game is, but it does seem like they are looking for a bit of controversy at the same time. It's an. I think you said earlier, Bob. It's like an odd. It's an odd pairing, but I do like the fact that they're trying something different. But my overall thing is, what's Ahmed mad about? Gold just kissed him. That's what he's mad about. Well, he saved his bloody life, didn't he? Well, he wasn't dead. (laughs) How do we know? It could have been severe, severe, severe concussion or something. We we just don't know, Bob. Do we? I'm not sure sure the kiss of life. 
<laughs> not sure that's how that works. Yeah, yeah, I'm not a doctor, Bob, but um, <laughs> but I don't get you know. In all seriousness, though, I, it was interesting to see, and maybe it will go somewhere. But I just don't see the pairing working. If I'm brutally honest, but but fair play to them for trying something different because, like I said, this is this is controversial stuff. I, a memorable angle. I mean, as we say, we we mentioned it in the news. They tried something controversial with Goldust and Undertaker, so controversial they could barely show it. Um, the big problem with Goldust and Ahmed Johnson is that the match could be dreadful. I mean, you, you can just imagine Goldust just pissing around, killing time for the first five minutes, and Ahmed Johnson killing him, dropping it on his neck. Um, but we'll see where that leads. Anyway, we should probably move on to the Tuesday. So this, so the Sunday was the first two matches reviewed earlier. That was the Monday. This was the Tuesday. We're now in Charleston, South Carolina. They're at the site of where they would otherwise be taping superstars, and I imagine they did tape superstars. Um, but a very noticeable change because the superstars taping had the ring aisleway opposite the hard camera. So you, 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 if you're watching these one after the other, you will very much notice the change. Uh, and they also decided that Vincent Mann thought, screw it, I'm not working three nights in a row. So we just <laughs> we stuck with Mr. Perfect and Jim Ross. And thank God he did because Jim Ross is a significant step up. And I would argue to an extent Perfect is a step up on Jerry Lawler, who generally just phones in commentary these days anyway. Uh, so those two... Uh, are out on the call. We see more clips of the strap match from Sunday. It was dark in there. The other thing to fill in from the TV on on the Monday we just covered uh, was an angle that I imagine they would have inserted during the pay-per-view itself had it have gone its full distance. But it's Ted DiBiase saying, if Steve Austin cannot beat Savio Vega, I will leave the WWF. Now, Ted DiBiase has um, had in his notice and will be joining WCW in the near future. So that's what that whole thing set up. I don't know he's joining them straight away, but apparently the idea is that DiBiase will be joining Ramon Diesel and Luger as part of the quote-unquote invading force. Anyway... Next up, it's Stone Cold Steve Austin with Ted DiBiase versus Savio Vega in a Caribbean strap match. Austin has a hold of the strap and won't leave and let Savio in the ring. We start with a tug of war. Vega back body drops Austin, who retreats to the outside. Savio drags him hard into the apron. Savio unloads some strap shots on Austin in the corner. Austin once again tries to retreat, but just gets some more shots. Savio makes an attempt at getting to all four corners, but Austin flips him over as the third. We drop to the outside, more strap shots, then Austin drops Savio onto the guardrail. Austin wraps the strap around Savio's leg and goes for the corners. He gets two, but Savio pulls him away from the third before swinging him around into the turnbuckle. Austin drops Savio over the top. Savio falls hard, but ends up pulling Austin over with him. Savio ties Austin with the strap and then starts dragging him around. He gets to three, but Austin takes him off his feet. Austin headbutts Savio off the top rope. Savio gets back up and crotched him. He recovers and hits a lovely superplex on Austin, laying both men out. Savio struggles to his feet, gets the three corners. Austin positions himself in the final corner and powers him into a spine buster. Austin drapes Savio across the second rope before just jumping across his shoulders and choking with the strap. Austin gets two, then distracts Savio and uh, gets distracted by Savio and doesn't go for a third. We get a double tombstone pile driver reversal. Savio ends up being bundled over the top rope for the outside before briefly getting his neck caught in the strap. Austin climbs onto the top turnbuckle. Savio yanks him off and he goes crashed to the outside of the guardrail. That looked lovely. Savio was on the outside of the ring and Savio pulled him off the top um, to the outside. Back in the ring, Savio picks up Austin on his shoulders and goes for a two. 
Austin slides off in a sunset flip and valiantly tries to stop Savio, who gets it. Savio eyes up number four, which gets a crowd reaction, but Austin pulls him away. DBRC is relieved, to say the least. Austin hits a pile driver. He goes for a second, but Savio flips him over. Austin jumps on Savio's shoulders. Savio gets the two, then decides to kick off the third to counter the hold. Austin wraps Savio, uh, the strap around Savio's neck and starts dragging him around the ring. He touches each turnbuckle, but Savio touches each one afterwards. They both get to three. Austin tries to pull Savio towards the turnbuckle so he can't, so he can get there, but he pulls him so hard that Savio goes flying into the turnbuckle and wins the match. Afterwards, Savio leads the fans in singing na 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 na, hey hey, goodbye. And we find out, uh, we'll cover that in a sec. Uh, Kieran, what do you think of this? Oh, what a match this was. And normally, Bob, I really, really don't like gimmick matches, maybe, and maybe before the match, I was, all the ECW I've been watching, I was a bit like, oh, I wouldn't mind just a straight wrestling match. But this is one of the best gimmick matches that I've, that I've seen, I think, up to this point. Um, it's just really unique the way that you have to have the, the other guy near you to, to win. I mean, I made that in my notes, so I, I'm probably, sort of muddled my words a bit there but I just like the way that you know you can do like a really good move to the outside and you know send the guy to the floor or pull him off the top turnbuckle but then you've got to get the guy back in the ring to then touch the the four turnbuckles I just really really enjoyed this match it's easily the match of the night for me Bob easily Craig uh, yeah I'd agree uh, I'd agree with Kieran's analysis of sort of uh, gimmick stipulation matches but this was really intense well booked and the the, the ending sort of leaves you wondering uh, what is next I mean we know it means DBS is gone but we sort of have uh, expect some sort of explanation from from Austin but yeah it leaves a couple of uh, questions which uh, which is good for development as well yeah I, I mean I, I think this match has been overpraised in some quarters in the sense that it is a very good strap matches but strap matches aren't that difficult to you know I, I think it's I don't think it's that difficult to have a good strap match I think it's incredibly difficult to have a great one this certainly wasn't that but it was a fun match that told a, a very obvious and interesting story and it was a bit samey they did some unique stuff but there was a lot of strap shots in and then it did formulaically kind of end up with the Usual strap match finish of heel taps the corner, baby face taps the corner behind and the heel doesn't know we get the struggle after the third. So, you know, I don't want to undercut it, but I, I think some of the praise is, is perhaps overdoing it a bit. But it's a fun match. It's probably the best match of the five that we see across these two nights. Um, but Kieran, I think the biggest praise we can say is that both these guys came into this match pretty cold in front of a, in front of a crowd that didn't react to them. And by the end, the crowd were, I wouldn't say they were all over it, but they were very no. invested. Yeah, I, I just think it just speaks to the, the work rate. And obviously, especially, I mean, you definitely have to have some form of good chemistry already with it being a gimmick match. But I just, you just come away with it thinking that both of these guys could potentially go somewhere if they're booked right. And I, I would, for one, out of all of the matches tonight, this is the one where I'd want to see this feud continue now obviously it may i don't know what's going to happen but may, it may not because with dibiossi leaving that sort of maybe put sort of a bookend on the feud but i'd want to see it carry on um but like you said the crowd were just complete at the beginning there was nothing 
And by the end of it, because of the story the two guys were telling, the, the crowd were getting more invested by the minute. Yeah, also it helps that they basically were able to um, rehearse this match two nights before, even in large well, parts. Yeah. <laughs> Craig, any more? No, I, I'd, I'd agree. I, I think that both guys showed that uh, WWE that they, they deserve a chance, don't they? You look at it and they put on a good show and it's just like, well, if you want to do something with us, it's clear that we can make a connection with the crowd. We move on next to Vader with Jim Cornette versus Yokozuna. Oh, yeah, sorry. There is a bit uh, after my notes. Uh, Shawn Michaels is live chatting on America Online. Doesn't particularly look like he's used the keyboard much before, judging by the, the brief clip with Shaw. But that's what happens. Shawn Michaels is around, but we don't have any use for him, so we'll stick him on America Online. Anyway, Vader with, Yokoz- uh, with Jim Cornette versus Yokozuna. Yokozuna comes back from Fat Camp and looks about the same size as before. Apparently, <laughs> apparently he's telling... <laughs> he's been to what? Oh, you, did, no, the, the, no, I didn't. Oh, no, well, the, the, this was a story last month, not they haven't mentioned it, but yeah, they, this wasn't a storyline. They, they wrote oh. Yokozuna off on the April 8th Raw, I want to say, uh, in the big angle with Vader, and they sent him away to Fat Camp. That was the whole, that was the whole point. For, which clearly is a Fat Camp, just fat did it. Camp. It's just all about eating raw fat, that camp, I think, rather than... Well, Yokozuna, for what it's worth, is telling people he's lost £30. Um, Drop his wallet. Yeah. (laughs) Well said. Um, The problem with Yokozuna is that he can lose £30 and you barely fucking notice. Still looks massive. And I should also say, I'll say it now, I'll probably say it at the end as well, uh, this is this is quite a significant match just historically in the sense that when we started this podcast, the WCW champion was Vader and the WWF champion was a significantly lighter and much more agile Yokozuna. Oh, so so an interesting little throwback to three years ago. Anyway, I'll discuss that more at the end. Yokozuna looks about the same size as before. We start out at, out at it with Yokozuna backing Vader into the corner, who cows off. We get a standoff. Vader doesn't look pleased. Yokozuna squats down. Vader gets in the three-point stance. But bails as Yokozuna threatens to charge towards him. We get to it mid-ring. Vader poses, then gets in the three-point stance again. Yoda sets a- uh, Yoda. Yokozuna sets again, but Vader bails again. We set again. Yokozuna whips up the crowd a bit. They charge. Vader finally goes with it, and Yokozuna knocks him down and sends him to the outside. Back in the ring, Vader hits a series of rough-looking strikes. Yokozuna takes him down and hits an elbow drop to Vader's inside leg. More strikes, another takedown, another elbow drop to the inside leg. It's like I'm watching this match on We Rind. Vader goes for a body slam. Jim Roth says the only person he can recall slamming Yokozuna is Ahmed Johnson. <laughs> it's not strictly true, Jim, and I've got a, got a feeling you called that one as well. <laughs> that, that might that might be quite a selective memory. Wouldn't be the first okay. time. I can't remember 1993 either. No, no. I, well, I, think, I, wasn't, I wasn't even born. <laughs> I, I, I think I think they're trying to forget it, to be honest. Uh, Who can y- blame them? No, indeed. Yokozuna slams Vader with one arm. Yokozuna puts Vader in the position for the bonsai drop. He goes to step on the first row, but Cornette goes for a tennis racket shot. Yokozuna blocks it, but ends up getting distracted by Cornette. He sets Cornette up for a bonsai drop, but Vader pulls him out of harm's way just as he jumps. Vader goes after the leg, then does a Vader bomb, and that will do that. Craig? Uh, it was alright. Uh, like I said earlier on, I'd like to have seen uh, the 1993 Yokozuna lock horns with uh, Vader, but because it was very obvious that Yoko was 
leaking uh, limitations. Uh, they, they booked this match the, the best way they could. Uh, they managed to tell a decent story. I quite liked the, the attack after the match, uh, but I did feel that at least half of the match seemed to be wasted with them looking like they might have a, a sumo match, but for for what it was, it was fine. I, I, I don't think it's going to make any uh, lists at the end of the year for match of the year. Kira? I'll just I'll just piggyback off that. I, I think some of the booking was they made it as entertaining as they could with the booking of it, but like I said, you just can't help but thinking, God, I wish this match was happening, you know, a few years ago, Bob. Um, it wasn't completely awful without merit. It's just you just know it could have been something else entirely. Yeah. Um... Yeah, I mean, just to mention what I mentioned at the start of the match, a, 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 a historic match in terms of a former WCW champion against a former WF champion. Kind of historic match for me, and these are two characters I enjoyed the hell out of you know, when we first started doing all this. I'm not to say I particularly soured on either one of them, but, you know, this this would have been a significant match early 1994 if one of them had made the jump at that point. This could have been a match that drew a lot of money. Um, as it was, obviously, it, it, it's kind of in the middle of this kind of rearranged show. Um, I really liked it, though. I liked the story they told. I liked the the action. Um, you know, it's a fairly limited match, but you don't want this match to go that long, to be honest. It doesn't suit either guy. Um, Craig, I guess my biggest fault is that we are five months into Vader's debut and he's scraping by Yokozuna that hasn't been relevant in, what, two years? It just kind of feels like... I I, I liked... In isolation, I thought it was a fun match, but it's another one of those Vader stories in WWF in these last five months that's been like, you've not gone anywhere near as far as you should have done. Yeah, it sort of feel, it sort of felt, sorry, like they were, they were hedging bets slightly, almost like the WWF thought maybe if uh, Yoko does lose some weight, we can use them so we don't want to bury them type thing. But if, if the WWF really wanted Vader to look strong, they'd have taken away those couple of minutes of the sumo nonsense at the start, took this down in about four minutes and just had Vader destroy Yokozuna. Much like they should have just had him destroy Rosie Ramon last month. Again, it's like, right. it, it's not like Vader in, in isolation is having bad matches. He's just having matches that I, I think the, the more time goes on, the more it's kind of going to be a case of, we're just, you know, uh, the, the more, like, the more Vader scrapes past people in winning causes, the more people think he's a mid-carder, and the less yeah. that, you know, you feel like if you built Vader up for six months out the gate, and they've, you know, they're not done that bad a job, but it just feels like that Vader should have been brought in, and they should have just had him on an absolute tear. And you yeah. look at the, the programs he's been involved in, you look at his matches, He's not done that. He had a good debut at the Royal Rumble. He had a fun angle with Gorilla Monsoon. And then he was involved in the opener at WrestleMania. Then he wrestled a 14-minute Even Steven match with Razor Ramon, who was halfway out the door. And then he wrestled a, a match where he scraped past Yokozuna. Kieran, what do you think? He just it, it seems to go like the complete opposite of how you would normally like to do it, especially with someone like Vader. Like you said, you want him coming in and almost... Similar way to like they brought in somebody like the warrior, you know, where he just ste- just have him steamroller over people. But it seems to me that maybe they, I think Craig said that they were hedging their bets. Maybe they were waiting and hoping that this Yokozuna match would 
you know, if he did lose, drop some weight and get somewhere near what he was, that this 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 feud might actually go somewhere, but they've waited so long, you know, for Yokozuna to get there that they've kind of lost their way with Vader a bit. I don't know. Yeah, could have been. Um, the scary thing was is that Yokozuna won the Sunday version of this match. Um, I don't what? know. I don't know what that means. Maybe that, maybe at that point they just thought we're never going to wear this match. Let's give the fans a kind of uh, a clean finish for, for a baby face. I guess. Uh, yeah. But again, that's like that's kind of part of it. I know that's. Uh, I know I, I may have just framed that in a way that wouldn't affect many people outside the people in the building, but like Vader, should, even if it's even if it's for six thousand people, seven thousand, how many were there? Vader should still be winning. Like you know, that's that tells me you're not protecting you enough, even if it is just for the sake of let's send the fans home happy, you know, or let, let's let's give the fans a, 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 a nice kind of victory given all the things that are going on, you know, do it like that. I don't know. I don't know. I move on to what is effectively the main event. Goldust with Marlena versus The Undertaker with Paul Barrett in a casket match for what I think was for the Intercontinental title. They, they barely even mention it as a title match. Um, but they, at the end, at the end they said Goldust retained, so I'm guessing it was. Uh, Undertaker sneaks up on Goldust. He whips him in towards the side of the ring, adjacent to the open casket. Goldust does his best Yokozuna impression at trying to be scared of the casket, but he's no Yokozuna. Then again, who is? Yokozuna slams Gold, uh, Yokozuna, try again. Undertaker slams Goldust's head off of the casket and then hits a slam and a leg drop in the ring. Undertaker walks off the top rope and drops a forearm across Goldust's shoulders. Goldust hits a body slam but Undertaker just sits up. Goldust hits Undertaker with a tombstone. He tries to roll Undertaker in. He gets it but Undertaker fights back as he tends to shut the lid. Undertaker rallies back into the ring. Goldust counters an Irish whip and goes for a sleeper. Goldust rolls Taker into the casket. Taker jams his arm in the gap just in time to stop the casket lid closing. Goldust climbs to the top of the casket. Undertaker flips the lid over and turns Goldust tumbling. Undertaker grabs a chair, but Goldust gets the big boot in before hitting a clothesline. Back in the ring, Goldust hits a clothesline off the top and goes for a cover before counting to three himself. Obviously, there's no pinfalls. Goldust walks the top rope himself. Undertaker flings him into the ring. Undertaker hits a tombstone, rolls in towards the casket, opens it up, and out comes Mankind. He locks in the mouse submission and puts Undertaker inside. He locks the lid, smoke comes out of the casket, uh, they announce Goldust wins the match, Barrett opens up the casket, and the Undertaker is gone. The lights go out as the show goes off the air, we finish the show as it went on Sunday, I guess. Uh, Kieran, what do you think? It was... It was okay... Um, again, nothing, nothing really stood out. I, I, I loved the ending. I'm a massive Mick Foley mankind fan. Um, but I thought the match was okay. I, just nothing special. I don't really know what else to say on that one, Bob. I just n- nothing really grabbed me with this one. Craig, my two abiding memories from uh, this match are. Mr. Perfect saying that Goldust could become the first person to beat Undertaker in a casket match, uh, completely forgetting the previous winner of a casket match against Undertaker, who'd just competed in the match beforehand. Oh, well, no, hang on, hang on. Undertaker did face Karma in one last year. Uh, you, you are, you are correct to say that Yokozuna beat him in 94, uh, admittedly with the help of, actually, no, wait a minute. Uh, Yokozuna beat him, but they had another casket match later in the year, which I think Undertaker won. Um, yeah, Craig, your, your, your Cassidy Rass history is a bit out, because then we had one with Karma last year, which I assume Undertaker won. 
Um, Aye, but but Mr. Perfect said Goldust could become the first person to beat the Undertaker in a casket match. Okay, in which case and, that that would be wrong, and you would be correct. Yep. Thanks. Thanks for we we got there in the end, yes. and <laughs> I, and also the front row of the crowd uh, laughing at the the end of the the casket opening, the Undertaker not being there, which I would be staggered if that was the reaction uh, it was going for. I don't really like casket matches. Uh, I think they're sort of. Just quite sort of obvious, and you're right. I don't think Goldust could do the whole fear face uh, at the casket to the same extent. It's an, odd, it's an odd pairing, Craig, isn't it? Really, it is. Yeah, yeah. It, it's also odd to try and. Is Goldust not an odd pairing with anyone? No. Uh, do, do you know what? Not with a pretty boy. With a Shawn Michaels, no. There's somebody God, like that. Goldust face. Oh, well, oh, see, right. Okay, if he face Shawn Michaels, yeah, I guess. Yeah. But with an Undertaker, where it's all sort of, st- <laughs> I've just got this vision. What's what was the thing that they didn't air? No, I mean the- I'm not entirely sure. Apparently, like got golf right. Yeah, started started <laughs> licking up the thigh, and then like you know, oh, God, I, 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 yeah, I, I didn't really want to read it on, really, to be honest. Um, I'm but- sure the Undertaker was. I'm sure the Undertaker was cock a hoop. Yeah, was, yeah. He's not. He's not your standard. Uh- Hunk through the Undertaker, is he? He's not like the sex symbol. Hey, whoa, 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 Craig! Whoa, that, 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 that'll be a changing gimmick. Anyway, I, I'm not, I'm not saying I wouldn't. I'm just saying he's not the sort of standard. <laughs> shall, shall, shall we bring it back to the match? Yeah, this, this is every Undertaker casket match you have ever seen. If you've seen the one against Kama, if you've seen really the first, the second one against Yokozuna, it's the standard stuff. Undertaker kind of plays secondary, second fiddle for large parts of the match. He gets in the casket once, he gets out, he gets in the casket again, he get, gets out, then he hits the tombstone and wins the match. Obviously, he didn't win this one, but that was really the only change from Formula was that they had... Um, Mankind, I think not catch that then. They had Mankind in the casket, um, and then he came out, which is quite a clever finish. Um, but yeah, I mean, obviously this was a, a mid-card match, but uh, Craig, I think I'm in agreement with you. Casket matches are just a bit, meh, like, you know, there's just, like, it, it's a gimmick match, but it doesn't really work. It's, it's very formulaic, and they've not, they've, it, it is always the same. They've, they've not worked out really a way of, doing it a little bit differently and until they can they should they might want to sort of park yeah. the casket match or, or, or just do it less frequently a bit like a strap match they don't do a strap match as much I forgot feeling the strap match right when the first one we covered in the WWF but only, it's one of those game matches where there's only a couple of ways of doing it there's only yeah. a couple of ways of building drama and if you do it too often and not, it's not at least with a strap match the formula they've got is quite good I know yeah. in this case they've got a good formula for a casket match, particularly when it is an Undertaker match where Undertaker's match quality really ain't that great and it also depends on the quality of his opponent as well. Kieran, and, any, and what, oh, I was going to say, what exactly uh, has the Undertaker done to earn an intercontinental title? Sure, not that that really matters in the grand scheme of things, but it is one of those little things that sometimes matters to me. Um, yeah, well, I mean, I guess he beat Diesel, I guess. Not that that was particularly on the way. Um, no, I guess he's just a, a, a you know, a, a WWF championship contender, so it, you know, you're gonna put him in a few with God. But yeah, one of those things where the title didn't, re- I don't think anyone would have noticed had the title not been on the line. Hell, it may not yeah. have been, I think is, is kind of the main point. Kieran, yeah. a, any, uh, any, any final thoughts on this match? I think they could have done they could have been a lot I think the gimmick sort of I think we've alluded to it but I just think the gimmick just limits the match entirely because 
everything's focused obviously on the casket and the casket just doesn't really work for me so the whole uh, the ergo the match doesn't work yeah uh craig your overall thoughts on this pair of shows and a score rating out of 10 uh, yeah, uh, like I said earlier on, I think it's going to be most memorable for uh, the fact of the weather uh, made it over two nights. I thought there was some good stuff in here. Uh, nothing tremendously great. For me, the match of the night was probably the strap match, just beating uh, Shawn Michaels' Bulldog, although on any other night, I think the Bulldog-Michaels match would have would have bettered it. I don't know, maybe a, a 7 out of 10, 6.5, 7 out of 10. Kira? Yeah, I'm I'm somewhere about the same, Bob. I think the strap match was re- was really good. I really did enjoy that. Um, Bulldog Michaels was was okay, you know. And, and then when it got to the end, it was it was it was really rather good. Everything else was just a bit blare. So I think I'll go along with Craig. I'm sort of no, I think I'll go. I, no, I think I'll go six out of ten. Six out of ten. I'm a bit more scathing. I gave this a four and a half. Um, okay. I, I, I think this is a this is an entirely unremarkable show, save for the fact it happened over two nights. Um, and there are reasons for that, as we say. You know, Sean and Bulldog perhaps could have been better had everything had gone to plan. But I can only really rate what I saw, and what I saw, I don't think, was very good. Um, the Tuesday stuff was slightly better, but like a, you know, safer. Uh, five or six minutes in the strap match there really isn't anything here of no um yeah kazuna and vader's all right but it's, it's another in the line of vader matches being you know poorly vader's character being poorly booked and 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 the classic match is a bit up and down yeah i i think this is an entirely unremarkable show if it only features uh in one mi- uh one night anyway we've reached the end of the month, but I do want to discuss one more thing before we finish. Uh, there is a, uh, a bit of bonus content coming at the end of uh, after we, we finish here. Um, but one final thing to discuss here would be all of the events in WCW. Obviously, we have discussed those at length with Jeff in, in Volume 1. Um, but, Kieran, I, I guess just your view on, on Razor Ramon appearing on Nitro and the prospect, the prospect sorry, of Razor Diesel and Lex Luger being a team potentially kind of led by Ted DB. Uh, really interesting. Um, I think WCW needs that in needs that injection of just anything. I think WCW's been quite stagnant um, for the most part recently. Um, I think it's been quite stagnant since this time last year. I yeah, would say. It, I mean, de- from definitely what I what I've watched personally, it's been it's been stagnant. And, and uh, say for say for some interesting stuff going on on Nitro. I don't know that if if you could be a bit more broad stroke than week to week television, which has been quite good. But the the more broad strokes of everything, I'd say WCW has been pretty flat for a while. I think we look at the top end of the card and you see what they've been doing with Hogan. They've uh, a load of title changes that haven't really made any sense. So go on, that's where my ne- yeah, that's I mean that's where my next point. It's it's just the fact that we're going to see these new guys, Bob, fresh faces for you know for the most part. We're, we're going to see them and we're going to see them inserted into hopefully some loftier positions. So we don't just get the. I mean, we're obviously we're obviously probably still going to get the usual Hogan matches, but it just WCW needs this. Bob is what I'm trying to drive at. It needs this injection of talent, um, both wrestling, um, promo wise. I think the matches will be a lot better. DBRC will be fantastic if if he is indeed like the manager or quote unquote not probably not the leader in a sense, but 
maybe like the bit more of the mouthpiece. I think I think this could really work. But overall, Bob, WCW just needs this right now. Craig? Uh, from in terms of WCW analysis, I can't disagree with anything. What Kieran said for, with a WWF hat, I think that they, they will be disappointed to lose uh, several stars that, that are over. Now, if you look at the, the roster and some of the guys in the, on the show uh, that we've just reviewed, there's no reason that some of them can't go on to be really big names, but in losing Diesel and Razor Ramon, they have lost two established acts uh, without having really built up many people to to step up to that plate with them gone. So I, I think that'll cause uh, cause some concern. But like Kieran says, it's it's a it's a big boost for WCW. It'll be interesting to see how how they use them, what it does for them, and also more importantly for the WWF, how they counter that. Yeah, um, it's going to be an interesting few months. We've seen Diesel on top, but in a badly cast character, and I would argue we've seen Lex Luger not pushed properly, and we've seen Razor Ramon not pushed at all. Those three as a trio of guys potentially on top in WCW could be fascinating if that starts to get over. Um, and I say all that with... Lex Luger, arguably the most overacting WCW right now. I say all that with, you know, Razor Ramon or Scott Hall, as he'll probably be known, having an interesting first night a couple of days ago on Nitro. Uh, it's intriguing times, as I said. We, we discussed it in a lot more depth on on the WCW show, and I think I think actually joining Luger with that team will be a bad idea, such how is yeah. how popular he is right now. Um, but it's going to be difficult because as I said this before. It, it losing losing talent in wrestling is not an even sum game or certainly isn't compared to say maybe where it was you know 25 30 years ago in the sense that guys would move from territory to territory but there was generally a bit more of a flow now these days we're dealing with contracts and guys only working with one company you lose two big names it's very difficult it's i mean it's all right bob when it's just like the one but when it's two and it's these two but on the flip side, though, you know, going back to what Craig said about the WWF stuff, it's they've kind of the WWF have kindly like they've made a rod for their own back by, like you said, they've not really pushed Razor. What do you think about that? That they've they've kind of done it to themselves in a way. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, I, 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 I've said my piece about Razor in the past. I okay. think I think it's right. quite a big missed opportunity. But no, it just it just hasn't. You know, the the, the Razor. The Razor thing, they for whatever reason, Vince just didn't see it. He just didn't see main event. And I think it's quite typical in the sense that it's probably too much of a character that Vincent Mann would ever go, that guy's the main eventer. But it's like, Razor Ramon might not be a main event act, but Scott Hall might be. And it's kind of like, well, if if you don't think Razor Ramon is the right character for a main event act then change the character. Don't not push the guy playing him. And let him leave, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, they didn't let him leave. You left well, them, no, left them more yeah. money. But, I mean, I, I think it's just more a case of, you know, there there may be a main event act in Scott Hall that you either by design or by accident didn't let yourself see. And we may get to find that out uh, in the coming months. Anyway, that will wrap up the main bulk of this show. I, I will introduce what's coming next in a minute. Uh, but firstly, a big thank you to Kieran Mitchell. Cheers, Bob. Thanks for having me on again. No problem, Kieran. You can be found on Twitter. I am indeed at Joten Thrash 666. And Craig Wilson. Uh, pleasure as always. Nice to chat about some uh, interesting 1996 wrestling. Indeed it is. Uh, Craig, tell me where they can find you on Twitter and about your uh, Ring the Damn Bell blog. Yes, you can find me musing about uh, wrestling 
almost always from a sort of vintage standpoint at ringthedambell.wordpress.com and from there you can find the, the social media links to our Facebook page and Twitter. And uh, uh, one of your, one of your guys is doing the 20 years ago thing, isn't he? He is. He, uh, ins- inspired partly by you and Partly by the fact that it's a chore to sit through three hours of Raw and it's much easier <laughs> to sit through one hour and 40 of a Nitro and a uh, Raw. Is, well, well, he, uh, he used to get a nice burn when now that it's June it's, it's crept up to uh, two hours of Nitro. Yeah, but I, I think he's quite enjoying uh, strolling through those just made easier with the network and also maybe sort of talking about what, what else was going on uh, at the time. Yes, uh, that that is a. Kind of, it's the week that was. Was that what that feature's called on, on your blog, Craig? The, the, the way we was, I was. believe. That's yep. right. Yeah, so, uh, a, a slight Scottish hinge on that. Uh, on, <laughs> on the way that that that, yes. uh, that name is written, but yeah. So if you're, uh, uh, we obviously do our own stuff, but yeah, there there is. We, we are hardly unique in uh, in covering wrestling from. Uh, it is from, a good. It is a good time to watch wrestling twenty years ago, though, because it, it is, is a sort of. Uh, older guys dying out, not dying out, but sort of come to the end of the run and the stars of tomorrow sort of being very, very green looking. Yeah, I mean, th- this is the beginning, really, if you like. This is kind of almost what the, what the last two and a half, three years of this podcast have been about, has been building really for, well, you know, this next three or four years, but almost in many ways, this next three or four months, given everything that's going to happen. Anyway, I will wrap up the show and then I'm going to introduce what's going to come after because I didn't wrap up the show when we recorded that last week. Uh, so yes, this has been volume two of this month's show. Volume one is me and Jeff Parker doing a very long look at Slamboree, that show, uh, and also the debut of Scott Hall on Nitro. Volume three is ECW, and when we've taped it, volume four will be uh, the UFC look at that show there. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Boy Bamba. You can find all the links you need on wrestling20yrs.com. We're on iTunes. If you're on there, do leave us a rating and a review. Uh, and that will do that, but but we will move on now to a, a special segment. As you, as you may have perhaps been surprised by, I've certainly been a little bit surprised by it. Um, in the last year or so, I kind of was thinking that we were going to get a lot of stories about the click. And while the click have certainly been involved in directly in a lot of stuff we've been talking about, it's not a name we featured anywhere near as much as I thought we would. And when we come, also we came to twenty years ago to the month of the curtain call, I kind of got there and thought. Oh, was that it? As in, have we not heard about them more? So me and Stuart Brooks and New Generation Project Podcast, uh, were able to sit down for about 15, 20 minutes and just have a quick chat in retrospective looking at the clicks run up until this point and their impact on the company. So consider this the formal wrap up of the show and I will just play the scratch noise in a minute and we'll carry on. So until next time, I've been Bob Bamber. This has been the May 1996 edition of the Wrestling 20 Years Ago podcast. And until the other side of this noise, goodbye. <coughs> Welcome to a special post-show on, on this month's WWF podcast. We're firmly out of 20 years ago mode now, very specifically for a reason I'll tell you in a second. I'm being joined by Stuart Brooks. Stuart, good evening. Good evening, Bob. Um, yeah, out of 20 years ago mode, very specifically, is, uh, is that on the taping date that we are taping this, it is Wednesday the 18th of May 2016. Tomorrow is Thursday the 19th of May 2016. And Thursday the 19th of May 1996 was indeed the curtain call. Now, you've heard us discuss that earlier on in kind of in 20 years ago mode. And that isn't the purpose of this 
kind of post-show isn't really the curtain call, but it will lead into kind of what I brought Stuart on to discuss. So I guess, Stuart, the, the first question is, I mean, 20, 20 years on it is, what's, how has the curtain call kind of stayed in the wrestling vernacular, really, in terms of it's a, it's a story that seems to have almost grown over time? Is that is that fair to say? Oh, oh, absolutely. And I think there's a very good reason for why that has A, stayed with us and B, grown in almost sort of mythical type status. And and it boils down to the phrase of history being wrote by the victors. In essence, the click are the victors in the Hunter Hearst Helmsley now runs the company. So he is free to kind of not necessarily rewrite history, but present history in a way that presents him and his group of friends as being particularly important to that era of wrestling. So being as four out of the five of them feature in this particular incident, yeah, it's grown in stature over the years. Whereas I think had, you know, what has gone on to happen not happened, maybe it would have gone on to be an incident that was merely a minor footnote in history. Yeah, I mean, you know, to an interesting way of framing it, I was reading kind of about it earlier today, the lead story in the Wrestling Observer on the week it happened was about UFC. Wasn't even the most significant story of the week. Now, you know, and again, I'm not, that's not a, a you know, a shot at Dave Meltzer. That's just an observation that that was, that was where it was at. An interesting kind of side note to that is that the lead story in the Wrestling Observer the following week wasn't even the debut of Razor Ramon and Scott Hall on Nitro. It was actually mm. the In Your House show, um, which you'll have heard us review earlier in this month's show. But I, I think it's, you know, I mean, it, I think it has taken on this kind of mythical status in the sense that when you break it down, when, you know, I have read about it today and I will have read about it more probably before the time, you know, I've actually recorded the the earlier part of this show, but it's, it wasn't that big an incident at the time. It was very out of place, certainly, but reading all the reports live in person, it was something that happened one after a lot of people seemingly already left the building. And there was, and then basically the guys you had left were either the guys that didn't know what was going on who were just a bit perplexed. And the guys that did that kind of just saw it as a, a nice little nod. I don't get the sense anyone at the time really went, oh, this is a, a, a game changing moment or anything like that. No, no, and, and I don't think in and of itself it necessarily was a game-changing moment. You know, Scott Hall and Kevin Nash going off to WCW was not directly influenced by this incident. That that was already a thing that was happening. And Hunterst Helmsley and Shawn Michaels wouldn't hook up on screen for another well eighteen months almost. So, although they may have, if anything, they may have hooked up quicker had it not have been for this incident. Yeah, yeah, very possibly. You know, Hunter's left to, you know, no real spoilers for, for future 20 years ago shows, but I'm sure you're aware he's left to sort of bear the brunt of the punishment for it. Yeah. But, yeah, if you watch the kind of the, the Click Rules documentary that was released last year by WWE, they even go to the lengths of getting on the two guys who filmed the only footage of it so obviously it wasn't filmed by wwe cameras but they bring in these two guys who were just at the arena and were there at a time when they didn't really crack down on people filming these shows you know and then they brought them in for them to discuss themselves filming it and and if that doesn't give you an idea of kind of how it's looked back upon with this sort of reverence well i can't see many other instances that that they dig out people like that for no um well and it also kind of happened in that that nice little window where 
video cameras were scarce enough that people didn't have them, but were small enough where people could easily enough get them into an arena just about. Um, mm. that, that's, it, historically, that's not a very long window. But, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, we, we would have covered the, the curtain call in the show, but, yeah, the, the, the point of this post-game show really is, it is to talk about the click. Um, and I suppose essentially that the, their lack of appearance in, in the timeline, I mean, you know, I, if, if you've been listening, if you've been with us from the start and you'll have heard me kind of, yeah, you probably would have picked it up if nothing else, but I don't particularly look forward. It helps with the format and I just don't really have time. But I was kind of getting into WWF early 95 last year looking ahead and thinking, we're going to get a lot of click stuff in the next year and we have had a bit. There's, you know, we certainly had some stuff that we can touch on, but sure, I'm, I'm here 12, 12, 13, 14 months on from kind of that realization at the end of, the formal run of all four guys in the WWE, or certainly the first one. And I kind of think, what was all the fuss about? It, it, I mean, it depends on very much what angle you're looking at it. If you're looking at it from an on-screen angle, I mean, the only references you ever really got to, the click, have, have only sort of cropped up recently for you in your timeline in terms of that's who Sean refers to his fans as being. But... They had a lot of interaction on screen together. I mean, Hunter Hearst Helmsley less so, but, you know, you, you go back as far as 93, you know, Sean Waltman's introduction was through Razor Ramon. Razor and Sean feuding up took a good, better part of sort of late 93 through to mid-94 with a sort of reprise in, in 95. You had the feud between Sean and Diesel, which, which kind of raged on screen for some time. And then you had Sean and Diesel sort of re-hooking up shortly before... Diesel departed. Now, I, I, I do wonder if their overall impact as a group on screen would have been bigger had Scott Hall and Kevin Nash chose to stay. The idea seems to be that had they been around, then Sean's programs throughout you know, his tenure as champion probably would have been, you know, with Diesel as a heel, which we saw at Good Friends, Better Enemies, and an absolute cracker of a match. Yeah. And at some point, I believe he probably would have moved on to more than likely a heel Razor Ramon. And, you know, had Hunter not been serving punishment, maybe he, he'd have got a short run. I can't see them having given Sean Waltman sort of a, a main event run against Michaels, but certainly the other three with, with the Diesel one being a bit more extended. Yeah, I think, you know, there, there, there is no denying that cause or can't, consequence or kind of whether it's directly as a result of them being part of the group or whether they were just guys that you view guys near the top there is no denying that these four guys are a very important part of that run from post hogan to well really now i suppose given that what's half of them leave they are an important part of the group but i guess there's a question of were they in the top spots because they were part of the clique or were they just guys in the top spots or near them who happened to be part of the clique? Yeah, I would probably lean more towards the latter in the sense that Sean seems to be a favourite of Vince regardless of who, who he's friends with and Diesel, as far as stature goes, Vince was always going to be interested in him no matter who his pals were. And Razor? Razor... See, see, I don't think ever on screen he really necessarily benefited from being a member of the clique or at, at least doesn't seem to. I think he very much occupied that sort of 
you know, Jake Roberts-esque level of babyface in that he was never going to be a main eventer and Vince doesn't see him as a main eventer and, you know, Vince, oh, sorry, Scott Hall acknowledges that on, on the Click documentary that, you know, he goes to Vince and says, is there anything wrong with my work? Is there anything wrong with my character? Is there, you know, is there anything wrong with this? And, and Vince says, no, you know, I think you do a great job in all aspects of it, but he's just not willing to make him, you know, go to that main event level. So, yeah, I don't know as if Razor necessarily benefited on, on screen from that. You know, I, I think he was about in the spot where he needed to be. Yeah, and I, I think that's one of my kind of bigger questions, really, is that this this idea that the Click were this kind of all-powerful group over over the WWF circa probably 95, I think you'd say early 96, it doesn't really stack up when you break it down. I mean, you yeah, know, there's been... Enough shoot documentaries to last us a lifetime in terms of guys that were on that on that undercard, you know, end of ninety four through ninety five, Shane Douglas, Bam Bam Bigelow, Jean Pierre Lafitte, guys like that. Guys that yeah, Bob Holly, that perceived they were quote unquote held down by the click. And yet there's not really much evidence of that in the sense that I look at a guy like Shane Douglas and I think you weren't held down by the click. You were held down by one of the worst gimmicks of that run, mm. of that two, three, four year period that our podcast has covered, that your podcast has covered. That gimmick was death. Like, if anything, it's a miracle that, that Douglas got to the point where he was working Razor Ramon and Shawn Michaels on, on pay per view. He didn't actually, he didn't actually wrestle Michaels, but he almost did. Um, from a mid card perspective, Bam Bam Bigelow's a guy that we, we dissected up and down last year. Um, but there was, you know, and maybe there's a case of Bam Bam Bigelow, but my, my bigger point with, with probably all of this is that if the click had enough influence over, over Vince McMahon and over who got pushed and who didn't. Why did Diesel get such a shit run of opponents in 95? And why did Razor Ramon never get the push that his character deserved? I mean, I, I guess we'd need to have some idea of what opportunities were taken away from people. I mean, I, I, I recall reading in it, uh, an interview with Brian Clark, Adam Bomb, who said, you know, he was due an intercontinental title run that was taken away from him at the urging of you know, the click and, and you read reports of this mysterious backstage meeting that the, the five of them had with Vince where they essentially dissected the roster themselves up and down and said, right, we can work with him. We can work with him. We can't work with him. So I, I guess where Douglas and, and, and Holly and Bam Bam and those guys might be coming from is more a perspective of there may be opportunities that, that we don't know about that were taken away from them at the urging of those within the clique. As far as Diesel's title run goes, I think, you know, I, I don't know as if it's necessarily that he he was given such a, a dire run as champion in the sense that it, I'm sure in Vince's head, he looked at those ideas of Diesel versus Sid and Diesel versus Mabel and thought, that is brilliant. Like, that is exactly what I want and and you know we, we've looked back on it 20 years or so later and gone my god this is terrible you know this guy's failing on top almost every month and his friend do you know, remind you of anyone well yeah exactly <laughs> to you know his friend two matches or so down you know you look at the Sean Jarrett match from in your house like that, that that's an absolute cracker you look at Sean Razor from SummerSlam absolute cracker and and you've got Sean's best friend, supposedly, two matches ahead of him or, or whatever, kind of having these really awful, awful main events. So 
Yeah, I, I don't know if it's a sense of Diesel was given shit to work with. He was, but I, I would imagine Vince's perception of what he was giving Nash was the same as what he gave Hogan. He gave Hogan King Kong Bundy. In, in Vince's mind, giving Mabel to, to Diesel was probably a similar thing. It just didn't work this time around. Yeah, it kind of links to, to to stuff I've said on the show about Hogan before, just in terms of... With all the stuff with Hogan, you look at all of the information to hand and you go, Hogan drew money when he had compelling opponents. I did an article on the site a month or so ago. Hogan wrestled Ric Flair, drew ratings, drew buys. Hogan wrestled Vader, drew buys. Hogan wrestled the the, the booty man. Hogan wrestled <laughs> the butcher, didn't draw any money. Hogan wrestled yeah. the Dungeon of Doom, didn't draw any money. And it's like, why... You know, and, and that's the thing. It, it's more a case of one. I, I'm not necessarily disputing the fact that they, they chose not to have a Diesel Bam Bam feud. I think it's just more if they had as much influence as they said they did, then they would have done that because that drew ratings. And if it's all about creating compelling characters for, uh, for Diesel to go up against, then why were they supposedly holding down Bam Bam Bigelow? There was no reason to, I don't think. No, but if there is this mysterious meeting that happened where they handpicked the guys they did and didn't want to work with, then I imagine regardless of what kind of Vince wanted, you know, a, a case of maybe he did want to push Bam Bam Bigelow as a really sort of killer heel post Lawrence Taylor. Now I'm not sure whether that would work after he'd lost to a non-wrestler, but yeah, if, if he's already been sort of scratched off the list as far as the click goes, then... You know, it's a matter of finding people, I guess, that they were willing to work with. Yeah, it wasn't a very long list, but but you know, when when you look at a roster that was that thin, and then when you go, actually, yeah, we don't want to work with him, him or him, that don't leave you with many options. But no, I think it's just a, it's an interesting look back, you know, as as, as we're going to come on to the same thing with Degeneration X in a couple of years, and that we're going to come on to a, well, obviously Degeneration X. DX were an on-screen act. These guys were. We're going to come on to a group that were a size for their time. And since that time, the perception of their size has been inflated above other things that were probably bigger. And I kind of feel like, having quote-unquote lived through it, that the clique were just a group of friends that, you know, probably had a little bit of leverage over Vince. But I don't think... You know, you, you look at the stories, and I kind of don't think. I mean, sure. I mean, you you reviewed the the clip documentary. I caught a bit of that that show. I, I've listened to it full in full previously, but I caught a bit of that show earlier. And just kind of go back through and kind of how was that presented twenty years on versus how you perceive the truth to be? If that question makes sense. Yeah, I, I mean, I think how it's presented on on the documentary is similar to how we spoke about the curtain call incident right, right at the top of this discussion. Like, they are happy to present that, you know, 20 years later as th- these were this really revolutionary g- group of guys that sort of changed the business. And, and, and to an extent, a minor extent, I guess they were in the sense that, you know, they weren't workers on mainstream US television like Shawn Michaels and Shawn Waltman in kind of the positions that they got to before them, if, if that makes any sense. Like, yeah, I mean, you, you could argue someone like Brian Pillman in WCW, but 
not certainly not on WWF television, and 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 it's the same, like you say, with D Generation X. Eventually, when you get to that, they're they're happy to kind of go back and almost rewrite history as people turned back up to watch D Generation X. They're the reason people come back into arenas. You know, when in reality, Bob, you'll you'll live through it, and we're living through it on our show currently. Is that the, the crowds return to see Steve Austin, but. The more convenient narrative for the WWE, given who's in charge of them, and don't don't take all this as like this really anti Triple H. No, I, I don't get the sense Triple H is even necessarily pushing it all that hard. I think it's just more if you work in a company where Triple H is quite high up, you are going to be directly or indirectly, cons- consciously or unconsciously, you're going to be pushed towards telling a pro Triple H story. Yeah, and, and but but I think the negative of that is it's it's almost downplaying Austin's impact. And you look at something like not not to divert the conversation onto Steve Austin, but you look at his use at say WrestleMania this year, where he was one of three guys that came out and and destroyed a kind of mid card act. Where you know for me, like Steve Austin shouldn't shouldn't be that. Steve Austin should be presented on the level that say they presented the Rock later on in the show. What in a in a six minute match against a six second match against Derek Rowan? <laughs> well, maybe not that. But a bit before it, the, the, the reverence with which they treat Rock appearances at WrestleMania generally. But yeah, the, 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 it, it's very much a sort of pro click narrative that, that the WWF are, are happy or the WWE rather are happy to present twenty years later. In, in the sense that yeah, that they are the the, the victors of history in the sense that. You know, if, if you look at maybe their direct enemies, which again, something you'll live through in the next year, had it been, say, the Hart family running the WWE now, you would find a much more pro-Hart narrative than you would a pro-click narrative. What a thought that is. Yes, you know, you know, say, you see, say you've got Bruce Hart running the WWE these days. You, you know, the, 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 retrospective view of the click wouldn't wouldn't be as positive put it that way i don't i don't think no i mean my perception of it is and, and take it for what it's worth i just think the click were a group of friends that happened to ironically probably it, it all started after this moment that happened to in two separate promotions be a part of the big boom period i don't necessarily think that the click were all that significant actually in their time the wwf it was just that was where they became friends and then after that point they you know split apart essentially and were each in their own different way part of wrestling's big boom period but i think there is a lot of stuff that's made up probably on both sides it's it, it, i say i think it's a weird thing i think there's you know there's, there's people that weren't in the click that are overstating their impact i think there are guys in the click there's no father i suppose i think the click perhaps overstate their own impact in that it probably was just more of a coincidence that they just happened to be four friends i think if if eric bischoff signs you know a couple of other guys at this time, I don't know who they'd be, they exactly have a ton of main eventers around this time, a similar thing could have happened. It just so happened that Diesel and Sean, Diesel, Diesel and Scott Hall, Diesel and Razor Ramon, happened to be the two guys that were going, and they happened to be the guys that ended up in the NWO. Now, admittedly, those are two very good guys to pull it off. But I, I think the impact of the click actually happens the minute the click break up, would, would probably mm. be my my way of uh of summing up anyway a very a very nice little end to this month's show um can i add one angle for you onto it bob go on uh, yes the, the the click as a group had 
an influence on Vince and in, 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 in his ear. I think that's indisputable in essence. But that wasn't a new thing. You know, Hogan had Vince's ear in the 1980s. It's know? not a new thing since either, is it? Like the, ex- the top guys get more influence over Vince because they've got more leverage. Exactly. So, but the difference in the 1980s was, you know, certainly the latter half and, and into the very early 90s was that those guys were selling out arenas. There were A, B and C house shows, you know, so the the lower card folks, so to say, were probably really happy with Hogan having Vince's ear because they were making all this money. Now, you contrast that with the 94 three sort of to 96 period where that is very much the bottom of the barrel of, of Vince and the WWF's business in terms of, you know, Raw's held in high schools where you can see basketball hoops in the background. They're cancelling house shows, you know, left and right. I think they even, it, it, have you just passed the period where they ditched the B house shows entirely? Yeah, I think that's end of 95. I mean, really, right, yeah. the, the house show news in the first three or four months of 96 is actually pretty good. In a, in a funny kind of way, which is weird in the sense that there's no real, you know, like all, all the stories in the first three months that their house show is doing really well. And the curtain call comes, I think it's the first time in like six it's or seven out, years yeah. that they sold out consecutive MSG shows. So yeah. the, the, the house show thing's really weird because the, the, the narrative on mid, mid 95 WWF is a business in the floor. The reality is like it, I know they were, they were in quite dire financial straits, but TV ratings weren't that bad. And house show numbers went down end of 95, in part because the roster got so thin they just couldn't run two shows. And then 96 came around, and maybe it was just because they were starting to strap a rocket to shore. That is probably the only thing that really changed. House show news around this time actually ain't that bad. But But I just think maybe that's part of the reason why sort of historically – you know, you've got this group of guys that that are really against them in the sense that, you know, the townsfolk were troubled at those times and the click might have been an easy target in the sense that, you know, they were consistently on television, they were consistently on house shows, they did have a bit of an ability to dictate who and when they wanted to work with people um whereas you know in the hogan era everyone's making tons of money everyone's happy yeah i'll go work the b house shows i'll work this house show but in in the sort of mid 90s you kind of don't have you know such frugal times and and you know the roster was happy to kind of find a bogeyman yeah um, and you know, ultimately, if I'm if I'm Shane Douglas, if I'm Bob Polly, if I'm Chris Candido, if I'm Bam Bam Bigelow, and 1995 doesn't work out very well for me, there is a very convenient story that I can push that fits a narrative of, that I'm happy with. And yet, ultimately, you know, I don't I don't think Bob Holly was held back by the click. I just think Bob Holly was held back by the fact he was called Bob Sparkplug Holly. And that's mm. the that's the thing you always go back to. Um, but anyway, that will uh, that will conclude uh, this month's show. Um, sure, I, I did mention it earlier, but you uh, on your New Generation Project podcast, you have done a uh, about two hour show, I think, reviewing the Click documentary. So tell people where they can find that and and, and about your show and where they can find all the other episodes. You can find us on all, all the usual places, really, that you can find podcasts. So iTunes, Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud. We post episodes sort of a, a few behind on botchamania.com. Yep, similar to what Bob does here. We review 
WWF pay-per-views. We started with King of the Ring 1993. We're just about this weekend to record our In Your House, A Cold Day in Hell. So we're kind of about a year ahead of you guys. And we've diverted into other stuff like WCW and ECW. Not not as much as kind of you do, Bob, but every, every now and again. And yeah, that's that's us. And your Click podcast? Because you, you reviewed what, Click Rules, wasn't it, the DVD? Yes, the click rules. Let me just bring that up. That is episode 45. So that's from last September. And yeah, it's a full dissection of that documentary. And we took listener questions on that one as well and kind of tried to answer what people wanted to know our thoughts about, you know, similar to this discussion here, you know, those guys in that time period. Recommend, Recommend the DVD? Yeah, I mean, the, the WWE documentaries these days are generally of a fairly high quality. I just watched Eric Bischoff one today, and, and that's interesting in, in terms of it quite heavily features the anti-Bischoff narrative that they were happy to push kind of 2008, 2009 when you get the rise and fall of WCW DVD, and actually has Bischoff acknowledge those criticisms, but again, you know, allows it, him it, a chance to voice his... And it's telling, it's telling that they ask those questions like that's when we talk about narrative and storytelling when you put together documentaries not always easy but it's telling that part of the narrative is let's ask eric bischoff about his mistakes and yet we do a documentary about the click and there isn't so much about let's ask them i haven't seen it i don't know they touch on it but let's talk more about you know the backstage thing and that kind of thing i think it's that you know i I think they're getting better and i think you you touched it on your show in the, the um on the click documentary we seem to be through the era where wwe are really like we're only going to interview the people we like and we're going to tell a story based around the people we like the biggest fault with the rise and fall of the ecw documentary as good as it is is it is a very insulated wwe view of the rise and fall of ecw i think while they're doing it now um there will be a probably a wider range of voices i think terry funk will be on there i think shane douglas will be on there douglas is a guy that featured in the click documentary as well ravens um, turned up recently as well yeah. which is another name i didn't think you know he he was certainly persona non grata but yeah douglas raven terry funk all guys that when you now when you watch back that rise and fall of ecw documentary they are like big emissions oh yeah uh someday i i, I we, we will do a podcast it'll probably be after the after the main kind of timeline finishes and having watched the ecw i'm just going to pick apart that documentary um and just see kind of go yeah we, we should be talking about shane douglas here 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 and here and yet we're actually talking about mikey whitbreck but anyway that's for another time uh, i'm going to assume that when i record the main part of the show i've done a full wrap-up so i'll keep this very quick uh this has been the may 1996 wwf edition of the wrestling 20 years ago podcast until next time goodbye <laughs>